0: Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcasting from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with a brand new episode. And it's a very special episode because not only are you getting two episodes this week, but this date, if you're listening on the day it comes out on November 5th, November 5th, is a red-letter day in uh, history because if we go back to 1955, that's when Marty McFly goes back uh, in time and accidentally... Causes his parents not to get together and has to spend the next week trying to get his parents back together, as in the plot for Back to the Future. Now, in order to cover this movie, in order to review this movie, I need somebody who is maybe like even a bigger Back to the Future fan than me. And I like Back to the Future is one of those movies that made me want to make movies. And so, it's one of the things that my co host and I uh first bonded over when we first became friends, when we first met in college, and he's been on the show uh, a bunch of times, but has been on in a while, and I hope to rectify that in the future, going forward, having him on more and more often. Uh, one of my closest friends in the world, Mr. Chris Buffay. How you doing, Chris?
1: I am doing fantastic. I am so happy to be back on. It has truly been too long. I always love being on Anything Goes. I always love talking about Back to the Future. In fact, I just love whenever we get to have a conversation, whether it's recorded or not, so... I'm doing fantastic.
0: Yeah, and well first off, thank you for that. And it's funny, like you say whether we talk about Back to the Future or not. Let's be honest there. We can't tu- we can turn most things and most subjects into <laughs> either Back to Future or Batman. Or Batman. So we can...
1: Yeah, or like a random home alone or Ocean's Eleven quote. Yeah. We, 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 we we've been known to do that.
0: Yes, our Venn diagrams of our things that we really <laughs> enjoy, like they complement each other really easily. Oh, they
1: do. They do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, like I said, we're talking about Back to the Future because we're going to be celebrating its 35th anniversary this year. So, let's jump into our view of it right now. okay now chris like this could probably a very daunting question um what is your history with the back to the future franchise <sighs> how much time you got <laughs> like well i could my glass is half full i, I could go refill it okay <laughs> yeah
1: this is the pee break for you so <laughs> back to the future is just one of those things that and i say this about a lot of things i say it about a lot of my favorite music and and you know television shows and things like batman but it's it's most true for for back to the future it's just one of those things that i always remember being there it was just always an entity in my life and i just remember the vhs i remember always seeing that it was always there on the shelf and just being just fascinated by the cover and the artwork which i i always no matter where I am at in my life, I always make sure I have a poster of that hanging up in my room because I just it just makes me feel good to look at it. It's just one of those things that was always there, and when I really, really started to like ramp up into full on fandom obsession was kind of in the uh in the period in between middle school and high school, I got the it was probably like the twenty fifth anniversary. DVD set, or no, it was, it, was, it was actually the 20th, 20th anniversary DVD set. And that just completely just took over everything else that I was doing. I'd come home from school, I'd pop in one of the discs, I'd put on the movie, I'd put on the commentaries, all the special features. I know it's one of the movies where I know the special features as well as I know the movie by this point because it just, you know, uh, over a decade of just watching them year after year. And it's just always been something that was there for me and, and comforted me during hard times. And, um, something that I always, always go back to because it's, it's my favorite movie of all time. The trilogy is my favorite trilogy of all time. They are my three favorite movies. I could quote them until I'm blue in the face. And I probably will on this episode. They're my favorite movies of all time. And this will be a complete love letter. So if you're expecting any sort of criticism, you've come to the wrong place.
0: <laughs> yes, where we need all the snark and pretend that we, we are above and beyond the uh, influence of this movie here. Like, well, back to you're just not that good. Uh, and I'll pretend like I am an author for Crack.com. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not doing that. No, no, it's going to be a total love fest here, and if people are not signed up for that, and they want to be cynical and like that, I'm sorry, you're going to have to find another episode, I apologize for that. Yeah,
1: that, that, that little spiel right there was, like, longer than my wedding vows.
0: <laughs> and being one of two witnesses at your wedding, yeah. I, can, I, can, uh, I can testify to that, yes. <laughs> See, you're, you're always there when it counts. <laughs> I, I i hope i i like to say yeah i am their wedding counts. like even though like sometimes my family thinks i'm a bit flaky but like even lately like i've been more family focused than the rest of my siblings and so i look at them like what what are you guys doing you guys give me shit for um <laughs> uh, yeah it, it is and it, it's so curious because obviously for the 35th anniversary like Universal just put out the 4K Blu-rays of Back to the Future. And it is curious that you mentioned the 20th uh, anniversary DVDs because um, those are like full-frame versions of the movies. Like Those are kind of like the same files you would see for the VHSs. And it's funny enough that when they were making this movie, they shot like open-mat, so they knew they were going to mat it to look like it's 185 for theatrical distribution. But since they shot Open Mad, there's a lot more footage that we, didn't, we don't really see, except for the 20th anniversary DVDs. You're technically getting more, uh, a bigger image on those DVDs than you get for the most recent Blu-rays. Which is really weird.
1: And it's something that I never even thought about. I mean, back then, I wouldn't have known, and I didn't know people like you who would be able to break that down for me. But, yeah, I mean, that DVD set, I don't even, that original, I think it was the 20th, right? It was the, It was the blue one, the blue case...
0: Um, the silver yeah like, like on it yeah
1: yeah the, with the wrong yeah and i was one of the ones i had the wrong um the wrong aspect ratio i i was one of the ones where if you sent in they would have replaced your dvds and i never sent in because i didn't know and now i know but it, does, it doesn't even matter because i own the movie on so many different formats now i have it actually have it through through voodoo so now it like automatically upgrades it to like uh uh, like the most high quality version that they offer currently on Vudu, which is great. Uh, but I also, you know, I have the 30th anniversary DVD set and, you know, I, I've since ripped all the bonus features because who wants to pop open a DVD in 2020? But, um you know it's 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 one of those things where i'll be buying it on all the formats i don't even have i'll probably never have 4k capable equipment but i'll probably get that at some point just cuz it's back to the future and i just have to have it you know it's it's just one of those things i don't even care if i can play it. you know i'll if i i'll i'll i have the cassette of the soundtrack i don't have a cassette player anymore but i have the cassette cuz it's back to
0: the future you know Right, and like I only have like one 4K Blu-ray. It was actually it was a gift. My college friend Tom he sent me the 40th uh, was it it was the 35th anniversary of Halloween on 4K as a a birthday gift. And like I've not upgraded to 4K yet, but like the first things I'm probably getting it's it's a toss up between the four Batman movies from the 80s and 90s or the Back to the Future trilogy. Like it's gonna be. It's Back to the Future or Batman. It comes down to that yet again, the first Blu-ray 4K sets I get. Either way, you win, you know? Precisely. Um, Now, my history with Back to the Future, it's very curious because I'm pretty sure I saw these movies out of order. Ooh. Yeah, because I specifically remember... I remember watching Back to the Future 3 the most when I was a kid because that was the VHS that we owned for the longest time. Interesting. Yeah, because I remember specifically the birthday when I got the VHSs for Back to the 1 and 2. Um, I must have been like maybe 7 years old, maybe 6 or 7 uh, because that was the same year I got my first uh, bike. And I remember like those were the three big gifts that year was I got uh, my first bike and those two VHSs. So I remember having, when I was very little, when I was like three or four, having Back to the Future 3 as a VHS in the collection. And so, and I, I guess it was just as a kid, that I wouldn't watch Back to the Future 1 compared to 2 and 3. Because comparatively, like 1, I guess is just a little bit slower because it has to set up so much of the world compared to 2 and 3, which jump right into the story, and you're jumping through time multiple times into, and to a lesser extent with 3. But as you get older and you mature a little bit, that's when you start to realize, oh no, 1 is something that's truly special. Not taking anything away from 2 and 3. I love all 3 of those movies, but I think 99% of the people will agree the first one is the best of the trilogy.
1: I mean, you kind of have to, just on basic principle, but it's very interesting, that exposure early on to part three and then kind of circling back, or doubling back. Uh, huh. <laughs> but that, that's super interesting. I kind of had the opposite experience where all I knew for the longest time was part one. I don't even know if I was aware of part two and three, which is weird because I had the VHS with the 2B continued, but I think that I kind of took that as what they intended it to be as a joke, just a little kind of cute little thing, cute little wink and nod, but um I just think that seeing part 1 and then all of a sudden seeing part 2 and 3 when I uh finally realized I guess because at that point I was you know, full-fledged an online person um, cause at a certain point you just become an online person and then you just uh, suddenly everything that you just can just suddenly learn. is It's just like, inc- Oh my God, there was another actor. There was this, there was that. So when I became an online person and I was still kind of rocking my back to the future VHS is before the DVD sets. I realized, yeah, there's a part two and three and guess what, dad, we're going to blockbuster tonight and we're getting those tapes the having only seen part 1 for the for uh you know for so long then coming to part 2 and 3 my mind just about exploded at just the sheer adventure that you go on and the scope of everything that they take you from you know the heights of 2015 to all the way down to the old west 1885 and everything i just remember just immediately knowing Like, if I didn't know that Back to the Future was already my favorite movie, I knew it then. And then I also knew that I loved 2 and 3 just as much and that this is now my thing. This is now my franchise, my trilogy. I was never a huge Star Wars person. I remember enjoying it as a kid and having some toys and some coloring books and things like that. But I never got super into the fandom, and I haven't seen the movies since I was a kid. Please, I mean, you have no way of reaching me, people with <laughs> don't don't send your grievances to Tim either, please. I'm I'm a nice person. I just I I haven't seen him. It's okay. You you everyone will survive. But yes, <laughs> back to the, Back to the Future is my Star Wars. It's my Star Wars, and it's there's never been anything that has that has even come close to it aside from The Karate Kid in terms of just how much I love the universe that
0: it creates. And I do find'm curious that you phrase it like like this is your star wars it's it's such a strange thing where people will like take a franchise or a movie and like oh that was my star wars like on please Rewind, my co-host guy milk says the Mad Max movies that was his yeah. star wars <laughs> and that's how he defines it um and, it, and like it's so funny whenever I can sneak in a mad max joke on the show and I because I know he pops for it and I'm like okay. I know I made him laugh and chuckle at that, <laughs> and yeah, it, it, and and you, is somebody who is being indoctrinated into your karate kid fandom slowly but surely. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> join uh, us. Yeah, like like you're dragging me kicking and screaming into the dojo, and Cr- you will know like,
1: kicking and screaming.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh man, we got all the jokes here tonight. <laughs>
1: Also, this like, this ladies- is why you stopped having me on the show. Because you, you have to look better.
0: <laughs> uh, no, it's like, also, we have not spoken like this in months. We yeah. haven't seen each other in months. And so, like, the, the, the silliness is just going to bubble over. Um, I, I just hope the listeners are able to tolerate it or not. If they don't, I apologize. Oh, yeah, this is, this is pure unfiltered here. You're getting the real stuff. Exactly. And... It, it, it's such an interesting thing because like, obviously we have a very close friendship and we have done things creatively, much like how Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale, uh, forged a creative fr- uh, friendship decades ago. And that's how back to future came about. And it, it's interesting because it was in the wake of their second movie that they made use cars, a comedy movie that we, uh, love even if all of its ridiculousness, <laughs>
1: That was one of the funniest nights of my life. I think watching that with you and
0: then reviewing it, uh, Mr. Royal Fuchs. <laughs> oh my god! I gotta go back <laughs> and listen to that at some
1: point. That was hilarious.
0: Yes, and um, and it was so during that time before Used Cars came out, Bob Gale went back home to visit his parents, and during his time while he was there, he was going through the basement. And found his uh, father's yearbook, and discovered his father was the, he was the class president. And Bob started, Bob Gale started thinking about like, I never knew this about my father, and I had nothing to do with my school president, my class president. Like, like if I went to school with my father, would I have been friends with him? And that that idea just started percolating in his mind, and he he kind of pitched that to Bob Zemeckis, saying like. We can do a time travel story where we have a kid go back in time, go to high school with his parents. And after Used Cars came out, it was a flop, much like their first movie, uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And of course, they also wrote the movie, 1941, which Spielberg uh, Spielberg, uh, directed. And it was not, it was a hit, but wasn't a huge hit compared to like Close Encounters or Jaws. So it was considered a. Misfire in Steven Spielberg's career. So they kind of felt a little gun-shy of doing another project with Steven Spielberg again. And even though Used Cards was not a hit, they had a relationship with Columbia Pictures. And they pitched the idea for Back to the Future. They said, okay, write a draft. And after five months, they sent them the draft. They asked for notes. And after the note process, Columbia passed on saying it was too sweet. And they wanted more raunchier comedies. And so, like, you know what? Take it to Disney. See what happens there. And so they pitched it to Disney. And Disney balked at the idea because you have uh, the mother of the main character hitting on her son, even though she doesn't know it's him. And that the kiss and it was too lurid for Disney. And they were kind of like, well, shit, we don't know what to do now.
1: I mean, I just can't imagine a world in which Back to the Future was a raunchy teen comedy. Or I can't imagine the world in which Back to the Future was kind of a sanitized Disney, I guess almost maybe like Flight of the Navigator-esque film. I just can't imagine it being anything other than it was. The best thing I think about it is that it brings in so many different elements of things that you go to the movies for all into one movie. It brings you kind of the teen comedy Especially, you know, the first 20 minutes or so of the movie, it just kind of feels like maybe like a like a like a teen high school, maybe John Hughes esque film. And then all of a sudden you're transported into this sci fi adventure. You meet Doc, then all of a sudden you're transported into a period piece in the 50s. And then that kind of plays out as like this kind of warm hug of a movie, even though you do have these undertones of kind of the the Oedipus situation, and then you do have Biff who is attempting to rape Lorraine. So you have these thick these this kind of seedy underbelly of this kind of you know uh, idealized fifties, which is. An interesting commentary in and of itself, but then all of that kind of comes to a head and to a culmination back into this big, grand sci-fi adventure with this this terrific orchestral score, and then you it just kind of leaves you there, like, wow, that's everything you go to the movies for. That's that's Michael J. Fox in one of the bonus d- documentaries on the DVDs. He said it's everything you go to the movies for, and he's absolutely right. This is everything you go to the movies for right here in one movie. And it's I couldn't imagine it any other way, so I am so glad that the development of this film occurred the way it did and it allowed the bobs to kind of realize their vision in this way without having to succumb to oh, let's make it more raunchy because then it can we can appeal to these people. Let's make it more clean because then we can appeal to kids. This movie appeals to everyone. I can watch it with my wife. I can watch it with my nephews and niece. I can watch it with my grandparents. I can watch it with anyone because it's back to the future. It's, it's, it's everything that you could possibly want in a movie all in nice, one nice little nicely edited, nicely shot, nicely acted package. And I love it for it.
0: I, I wholeheartedly agree because you imagine like, okay, you think of fast times of Ridgemont high or risky business and, yes, they're popular, and they're still popular to this day. However, they are such of the moment. Yes. And they're so, like, like of course, you have Risky Business. You have the famous moment of, like, Tom Cruise comes sliding in in his underwear singing to Bob Seger. But that's such an 80s moment. And even though Back to the Future is very 1980s, it's very optimistically looking at the 80s at the time. But it transcends that decade it has become classic even though it is a period piece in the fact that it's been 35 years since its first release and we're now 65 years away from where the second uh, uh act second and third act take place from and yet that seems more timeless than something like rocky four came out the same year And that's a <laughs> that is such an 80s movie yeah, there was no
1: James Brown song and dance in Back to the Future, unfortunately.
0: Yes, I mean, like, I'm now we know what would have made this movie perfect, because it doesn't have the James Brown uh, singing and dancing.
1: <laughs> oh, man, could you imagine? Could you imagine if he went into, like, uh, like uh, I Feel Good or something like that at the had with the Sea <laughs> Dance? I got the feeling. Oh, man,
0: this could have been a whole different... <laughs> Oh man, it, it, it would have been it would have been over the top. Uh, another Stallone movie of the same era. Oh my god! But, um, but <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're right. Like maybe it's because Disney owns so much media these days that having Back to the Future associate with Disney, I, I like I would have been maybe sour to the idea because they own so much IP. But maybe it's if it was already baked in, um, I wouldn't have those feelings for it. But because of if the hesitance for the Bobs to work with Spielberg again, they felt like if they did another movie with Spielberg and it flopped, like there's no way they're going to get another job unless it's their friend Steven setting up their uh, projects for them. And so, Bob Zemeckis goes off and directs for *Romancing the Stone*, which was a sleeper hit. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a huge blockbuster. It, like it started slow and slowly gained traction. And after the success of that, um, because it's like a true Hollywood story, like, okay, what's next? And like, well, we got this Back to the Future idea, but we're going to have to do it with Spielberg because he was the first one who supported the idea in the first place, so we want to do with him. And Universal struck a deal with Amblin Entertainment. It was the first movie done by Amblin that was not directed by Steven Spielberg and produced on a budget of around $19 million dollars Shot in 1984 and into 1985. There were so many people that was going to be a part of this movie. I mean, the cast that we have now is iconic because of this movie, but it wasn't almost the cast we got. I mean, Marty McFly, I mean, famously was almost played by Eric Stoltz. And that's one of the things that blew
1: my mind when I first really came online and started to learn about the making of this movie, is the whole fact that there was another Marty, and you see the pictures, and it doesn't look like Marty. It looks like some other random kid from his school, maybe. But it, it doesn't look like Marty. It doesn't feel like Marty. If you've seen any of the clips that are on YouTube, the brief clips that are on YouTube, actually, of Eric Stoltz, it just doesn't feel quite right. And you kind of get the sense that they made, they made the decision that saved this movie from toiling away into obscurity. Because can you imagine a part two and a part three with Eric Stoltz? It just becomes a whole different thing. But that still makes... It's still one of the most intriguing aspects of the movie. Just because of the whole idea of the movie that we're dealing with here. Alternate timelines and kind of a different different look into this movie. I would love to see the Stoltz footage because of the reason that it just... It's, it's kind of almost like perfect for the type of movie that we're talking about. This is a different, uh, this is a completely different Marty. What happens if, if George and Lorraine met under different circumstances? What happens if they met later? They had different kids. This is that kid. I kind of love that idea that, yeah, there's a different Marty out there. He looks like Eric Stoltz, who, by the way, now looks eerily similar to Michael J. Fox, which is a, a very weird thing these days. They look very similar, um, But I just, I love, I've always loved that fact that there was another Marty, but I love it especially because it gave them a second chance at making this movie work. So the second time around, you better believe that they were like, you know what, this didn't work the first time around. Let's tweak this. Let's change this. And it made the movie better. That's one of the reasons why everyone says it's such a tight movie. It's because they they literally had a second chance to shoot like, you know, however many weeks worth of footage over again with michael j fox of course it's going to be better and it was a better film because of it
0: yeah i mean like eric stoltz is a terrific actor but it was reported that he was very method on set only referred to by marty and like when there was supposed to be a scene where like tom uh wilson loved the actor who played biff like Marty's supposed to shove Biff, but, like, uh, he's supposed to be, like, all right, Biff's supposed to be towering over him, but Stoltz would, like, all of the strength push Biff and everything. It's like, okay, you're bruising my shoulders here. Um, you got to do it a little bit subtler, and but Stoltz would not take that kind of direction. And because they had a release date in place, um, Zemeckis knew they had to edit the film as they were going along, but he didn't want to look at the footage right away. However, after shooting for a couple weeks, he reviewed the footage with the editors and Spielberg and they realized it was not working out. They weren't getting the last word. The heart was not there. And so they had to, it was one of the most uncomfortable things of the uh, the time where they had to let Stoltz go and Zemeckis still feels like I broke the dude's heart by having to tell him that, yeah, you're fired. Um, And like some reports saying it was Spielberg who said like, uh, Hey Eric is like no, my name is Mari. Like, No, your name's Eric, and you're fired. <laughs> uh, like that—that that is speculation. We don't know if that's true or not. Um, and so, because they wanted, they actually wanted Michael J. Fox initially uh, because of his work on Family Ties. However, the producer of Family Ties would not let him go. And after letting Stoltz go, they had to renegotiate. Like, can we please have Michael J. Fox? Well, we'll make the schedule work. And so what would happen was that Michael J. Fox would shoot between 9 and 6, Monday through Friday. He would hop in a car and then shoot nights until the wee hours of the morning, be pretty much picked up and put in his bed. And he would get like five hours of sleep and then go back and shoot uh, Family Ties. He would do that for the entire duration of the shoot. And all the stuff that was shot outside during the day was shot on the weekends. And I just can't imagine the amount of exhaustion that Michael J. Fox must have had while making this movie.
1: That dude must have just been running on sheer Pepsi by that point. I mean, I can't imagine that. I love Family Ties. I think it's a terrific sitcom. I think it's one of the the better ones of that era. But imagine if it had actually deprived us of Michael J. Fox in this film. I, I... I just can't imagine the world in which we don't have him as Marty McFly because he just is Marty McFly. And it's 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 the utmost compliment that I can say to him that he is Marty McFly. Michael J. Fox himself is Marty McFly. There's no one else who could embody that role the way he did. There are people who could do a different take, certainly. And I, you know, I respect that Eric Stoltz had a different take on it artistically, But if it wasn't working for the movie, then they made the absolute right decision. In my mind, what I always envision is him playing Marty kind of the way he played the main character from Some Kind of Wonderful, also with Leah Thompson. Now, I enjoy that movie, but it's not the most memorable movie. And it's also not, he's also just not a really likable character in that movie. He's kind of annoying. So if he had played Marty the way he played, I don't even remember the character's name, and I've seen that movie like three, four times, so that tells you something. If he had played Marty the way he played that character, because I kind of can see how he maybe would have, because there's kind of a little bit of a parallel there, I just don't think that the film would have worked at all, and it would have, like I said, toiled away into obscurity. As this cute little, tri- cute little time travel movie with a really good cast, but it just didn't work for some reason, you know?
0: Yeah, and it, it is something to say because we we recognize that Michael J. Fox is iconic in this role. However, Fox was initially skeptical of his own performance because he was running on fumes. That he was like literally just running, like, like he joked, like, "I am twenty two. This who I don't need sleep." Um... And so he didn't feel like he was giving his all. And I guess he was, I don't know, being self-deprecating it because he turns in an iconic performance in this movie of the, the sheer wonder and awe of the fact of going back in time and experiencing the world that his parents lived in.
1: Yeah, and it's the kind of thing where if people, for anyone who's mad that there's not a part four and that the Bobs don't want to reboot it and don't, you can lay all your blame on Michael J. Fox because the fact of the matter is, you could do back to the future again if this were an eric stoltz film you could they would have done this film again if if they kept eric they would have already rebooted or done another movie or done something they would have already done it but the fact that michael j fox came in and did what he did what where did, where else do you go from there you know so i completely understand you know in that respect because he like you said he turned in an iconic performance. He he's one of the magical ingredients that made this movie even greater than the sum of its parts which is already really
0: great. Seriously and he's only one half of the power uh, duo of the leads this movie because we obviously have Doc Brown played by Christopher Lloyd and Christopher Lloyd was not the first person that was in contention for his role. I mean, actors including John Lithgow, Jeff Goldblum. And I, I, I was imagining, like, yeah, this Goldblum as Doc Brown, like, yeah, I'm, uh, 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 we're going back in time, Marty. Uh, uh, yeah, so it goes to 88 miles per hour. <laughs> uh, yeah, so like, the movie's two and a half hours long to get all the exposition in. Yeah, you
1: have to time travel just to get past his dialogue.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, then there's reportedly, like, John Cleese or Dudley Moore, and I'm now just imagining Dudley Moore of, like, Arthur fame, like, as as Doc Brown, like, just, like, make Doc Brown an alcoholic, but it's just like, oh, God. Yeah, Um, I could have, I
1: almost hated this movie if that happened, you know? Like, all
0: right, Marty, we're going back in time. <laughs> um, but luckily, uh, Absy, because if he had been successful on uh, Taxi, uh, that's what led him to get the role here. And it is so much funny because they age him up in this movie, and so I've always felt that Crystal lloyd has been old for yeah. like decades,
1: yeah, but he hasn't. That's so it's it's so weird dude it's weird to see christopher lloyd now and be like oh man doc is old but wait a minute doc always felt like he was (laughs) old and decrepit even in the 50s when he's supposed to be young he still just feels like he's old he just always feels old but it's weird because he's kind of this ageless being that always just kind of feels like your weird eccentric grandfather or uncle or something like that and he is the other magic ingredient that made this movie what it was. And I just, I can't imagine anyone else playing Doc Brown. And, you know, it's, it's cliche to say, but the one person that I've kind of thought, like, I think maybe he could have made it work because he he probably has the right kind of energy for it. And it's a weird choice, but Michael Richards, I feel like Michael Richards could have been an interesting Doc Brown in a weird parallel universe uh which then might makes me want to see Christopher Lloyd as Kramer but that's besides the point but yeah i mean i just feel that there's a certain energy there with Christopher Lloyd as Doc Brown that immediately just kind of makes this movie so much more of a warm hug of a movie and i just there's there's just a a familiarity there between Doc and Marty that is one of the things that you hear a lot that people question, why are they friends? Why is, why is this high schooler hanging out with this older eccentric scientist? And it's just not one of the things that ever really crossed my mind before while watching the movie. Because it just feels like they are friends. This cross-generational friendship. It feels like it's a very lived-in friendship. They know each other well. Marty's hanging around the lab. Doc's experimenting on huge, gigantic amplifiers that would destroy your eardrums. And it just feels right. You know, it's just one of those things. So you put Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd on the screen together, and it's just its just magic. It's just complete magic.
0: And now you say, like, switch the roles between Mike Richards and Christopher Lloyd, I'm just now imagining... Moments of Seinfeld, like Jerry opens the door and Krim- and Crystal Lloyd comes sliding, in like, uh, Jerry, do you got any food? <laughs> and have him raid uh all for all of his like <laughs> for his cereal, and then tells him about his harebrained scheme and everything.
1: <laughs> Jerry, you gotta come back with me.
0: Ah, <laughs> oh, jeez. And like I, I always kind of like somebody pointed out to me in like in a video, like um because Marty's kind of an outsider within his own family. Yeah, like he he like he's not much. He's not like his his brother or his sister, and likes rock and roll and he likes technology. And obviously, Doc Brown is an eccentric person. And I guess maybe like he would have seen something that Doc was doing, like maybe a public display of some kind of experiment. And Marty's just the kind of forward person to go introduce himself and. Like, oh, you build giant amplifiers? I would love to test those out. And so now they have a a symbiotic relationship of a test subject and a builder of things.
1: That's kind of along the lines of the way they explain it in the IDW comics. It's It's not really a huge spoiler for anyone who hasn't read those. I recommend them, by the way. I have all the trade paperbacks. I think they're really, really fun if you like this universe. But the way they explain it is that Marty... Uh, is looking for a tube for his amp because I think Needles and his gang, they, like, broke his amp or something. He needed a new tube for his amp. And the store was sold out, and he found Doc somehow. Oh, no, I think it's the store. They tell him that, oh, yeah, this guy came in and bought up all of our vacuum tubes. Go check him out. Maybe he'll sell you one or something. So then Marty kind of figures his way out into Doc's lab. He has to, like, break in And Doc is so impressed with him that he hires him to work at the lab. So that's kind of the backstory that they explain in the comics. And those comics, Bob Gale is involved. He's been involved in the writing of those comics. He oversees all of them. So as far as the universe is concerned it can be considered official canon so that's kind of right on the money there with yeah they're just kind of attracted to each other based on they are kind of outsiders doc is seen as this weirdo by the community and he burned down his family's mansion and he's this eccentric scientist with this crazy hair and marty's just this kind of kid who he's like he secretly he's like i know i'm cooler than everyone in my family but they think i'm the loser and you know he's cool but he flies under the radar and he plays in a band he has you know a really nice girlfriend but he's not like he gets bullied you know he 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 has his antagonist he has his kind of his own biff in a way in needles uh so it's kind of a thing where yeah they're just kind of kindred spirits and they're just kind of meant to be friends and it just works. And it's not really something that I feel it's a like a Miyagi and, and Daniel relationship. It's not something that people like to find the salacious. Oh, what's, what's a high school kid hanging out with a, with an old guy for. And it's like, I mean, okay, if that's just where your mind immediately goes, but I think there's nothing in this movie that suggests that it should be taken in any sort of weird way. So very interesting what people pick up on. The things that people like to focus on with this movie, that aspect, the whole kind of uh, incest thing, which is, again, kind of missing the nuance of the entire way that they wrote it. But again, I'm I'm jumping ahead now, so let's get back on track.
0: No, yeah, I, I mean, like, I, I think it just says more about the people who are reading into that than the intention of the original work. and And yeah, of course, like, Marty, like so many people, ha- like has his own bullies, much like how dogs have fleas. Um, so it is it is interesting. Like there, like obviously, Bob Gale's been involved with comics for years. I remember when I first got the the Batman arc, like No Man's Land. I opened up like first issue written by Bob Gale, and I'm like, that can't be. Yeah. And sure as shit, it is the same Bob Gale. And so I'm like, yeah, so Bob Gale's written Batman comics. Who knew? Um... And I I do need to check out the IDW uh, comics. I also need I need to get I, I need to own the Telltale game of uh, the Back to Future video game, which yeah. is pretty much Back to Future four in the creator's eyes. It
1: basically is. And you can go on YouTube and just watch all the cutscenes cut together. Uh, some beautiful soul on YouTube made a part four and part five just from footage from the game. And they play just like an animated movie. So, yeah, I highly recommend those as well. But, yeah, the comics, definitely check them out. If we still lived in the same state, I would let you borrow them. But um, I highly recommend the comics and that Telltale game for anyone who's hankering for more Back to the Future. Because the official animated series doesn't hit the spot in that way. But, But those things do.
0: Right. I mean, yeah, you have Chris O'Loyd as your intro and outro personality with a introduction to a Bill Nye's, yes, the science yeah. guy. Um I thank uh What a cartoon for pointing it out to people, uh the podcast that does that covers animation. Um and it, it is curious, like yeah, so like yeah, like uh Marty's kind of like cooler than most of other people in his family much like how I guess like in the beginning of the movie like uh, Lorraine Baines McFly played by Leah Thompson is kind of a sad woman but it's so it's so curious to see what Leah Thompson looked like as an aged woman in Back to the Future and what she looks like today and just like it's like worlds apart like it's like the furthest thing from like uh, what the aged makeup was going to thought she's going to look like in her 40s oh, she looks incredible
1: she's just man that's that's a that's a total a total crush right there she just she ages i'm i don't drink so i can't speak to fine wine but she just ages really well she's just one of those actresses who just ages so well her and julia louis dreyfus again to to make a, a a seinfeld connection here i feel like they they just they just do not age. They just, they look real good.
0: Yeah, it, it is curious Like, it's like, like, I, I it's like, wow, it, it, it makes you jealous. Like, wow, like you, like you hope you age just as graceful. And I love her performance. It's like she has, cause she does play three different versions of Lorraine in this movie. They're subtle, but they are different. Like we had the kind of sad and version of her at the beginning of the movie. Then we see her at the same age as Marty when he goes back to 1955 and then the changed version near the end.
1: Yeah, it's incredible the performance that she is able to just completely transform from this kind of downtrodden, like you said, sad woman into this just completely boy-crazy teenager who has her whole life in front of her and is just this kind of ball of energy and kind of you know, hoardiness and just like, <laughs> she's ready to go. You know, she's just, it's incredible. And then at the end, she just seems like this, this kind of warm, kind of uh friendly mother who's content with life and complete opposite of where she started from. And this not even to say part two and part three, this, the, the performances that she is able to put in, and all the different subtleties in kind of her her tonality, the way she speaks and, you know, her facial expressions. And it's just incredible. She in the bonus features, she says at one point uh, it's said and this is completely outdated and stupid. She's but she says, you know, some people say that there are only three great roles that a woman can play a virgin, a mother and a whore. And she got to play all three throughout the course of these movies which you know it is true that's I mean that statement itself is far from the truth but she really did and she nailed each one of those roles
0: seriously did and, and like she obviously left the impression because yeah like it's like how many people men and women like had their first crushes on Leah Thompson because of Lorraine when she's like back in the 1950s and she's like wow like,
1: like it's
0: like really staggering and of course her husband in the movie George fly played by the always unique crispin glover um and his incredibly memorable laugh (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's like it's like starting up a car It's it's like it's puttering and you you hope to kick over Like, it's going to, like, all right, like, he's pump the gas, like, all right, it's going to turn over this time. I know it. Put on the honeymoon, it was quick. <laughs> and, yeah, and obviously, like, McFly, uh, I almost said McFly. Uh, Michael J. Fox and Chris McGlover had worked before because I think Chris McGlover did an episode of Family Ties earlier on in the series run. And it's, it's, it's something that, that's, like, I say the word unique because I can't really find another word to describe. The kind of otherworldliness that Chris McGlure brings to his portrayal of George McFly. Like, like the line, like, like, oh, hey, you, get your <laughs> damn hands off her. Like, on the page, you can read, the, like, hey, get your damn hands off her. But, like, the, the gusto he brings to a line delivery like that is what makes his character stand out.
1: He's just got that energy. He's got that George McFly energy. It's another one of those brilliant castings where you can't replicate it and they kind of had to for part two but you have to take so many steps around it because there is no replicating a guy like Crispin Glover and it's unfortunate that going forward you know there's there's the animosity and the bad blood because again it's just it's 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 a repetitive statement but he just embodies George McFly he is George McFly he has that energy and there's this you kind of they don't really look like father and son, but they kind of feel like father and son in so many moments, especially, you know, in the, I just don't think I can take that kind of a rejection, that type of way. They kind of, you know, they're cut from the same cloth. They that kind of that kind of uh lack of confidence, kind of self-loathing type of feel, but Marty takes it in a different way than, than, than George does certainly, but man, what a, tour de force performance for crispin glover and then that was it we don't get anymore and i think that's one of the most regrettable things about back to the future in the trilogy is that we don't get any more of crispin glover as george mcfly
0: right and like they they both have the same insecurities as creative individuals like however marty is willing to put himself out there and Try, even though he does get rejected. But that's the whole point of like being creative. Like you're gonna you're gonna hear no a lot more than you hear the word yes. And unless you're Daniel he- Bryan, <laughs> 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 I can't even be mad at that one because it's true. I can't I, like I can't pull that's false or anything.
1: Outdated wrestling references, yes.
0: <laughs> I, I I mean like it, it's he's one of the few stars that WWE still has right now but i mean that's that's just a sad state of their uh roster right now but let's not get into that oh yeah let's field. not let's not <laughs> no um especially after the recent hells in the cell the hells in the cell matches <laughs> um yeah and like yeah it makes you wonder if a deal could have been struck between Chris Glover and the bobs and it's been reported that like it's it was due to a money issue that The Bobs have said that Crispin wanted more money than what they were offering to Michael T. Fox and Christopher Lloyd, and Crispin Glover has refuted that. Uh, Who knows if that was just his management that was saying that, but they obviously reached an impasse and they recast him. And I wonder what, it's one of those things, like an alternate timeline, how different would the sequels would be if Crispin Glover was involved with them?
1: Oh yeah, completely different part two at least, because they wouldn't have had to have written George out which is one of the things about part two that kind of set it on the course that it goes. But man, yeah, totally different situation. Then totally different part two and three, maybe they would have been better. Maybe not, you know, who knows? Maybe we would have gotten, we wouldn't have gotten so many of the iconic things that we got from part two. And, uh, you know, it just makes you wonder, but it's, it, it's another thing where it's just the stories back and forth and, you know you consistently hear from Bob Gale what the story was and then you hear all these different things from Crispin and Glover so it's it's not really hard to kind of know who who you should be taking a little bit more you know who you should be taking with a grain of salt and who you should probably put a little bit more faith into but it's unfortunate but it's it's one of those things that that happens and it, it, i'm just glad that we got a movie out of him and they were able to work with him Just based on some of the things that that the Bobs say about Crispin, about his kind of how he wanted to play certain scenes. Oh, I think my energy would be this. I think my motivation would be this. This is what my hair would look like. This is what I should be wearing. Wanting to have these outrageous outfits in, in in certain scenes and just some of the more wacky things that he was coming up with on set that they had to kind of maneuver around. Very impressive that they were able to get what they needed to out of him and that it was so good
0: right like you want a performer to be collaborative and bring energy to a role if it requires it so it's like it's kudos to him that he was that committed to it it's just finagling that energy in the right direction the right tone of the story is the tough part of a director and producer um But obviously, like, the last, like, the major role that's played through all three of these movies is Thomas F. Wilson, Wilson, excuse me, who plays Biff Tannen. And it's just, like, the perfect, like, 80s movies had some of the best bullies in movies. But it's kind of hard to top Biff, in my opinion.
1: It's very hard. That man is just a tour de force. That man is the unsung hero of... I, I mean, now he he really gets his due, you know, a lot of fans totally respect everything that he brings to these movies. But really, for a long time, I feel like he was the unsung hero of this entire trilogy, just based on the sheer amount of roles that he has to play, the, all the different characters, everything, all the different eras that he has to portray. It's just incredible. It's incredible what this man has done within the span of these three films, much like Aaliyah Thompson, having to be so versatile and to disappear into each one of those roles, that's really impressive. So had they gone with, I believe the actor's name is J.J. Cohen. He plays one of the members of Biff's gang. Had they gone with him as the bully, who he was originally supposed to be Biff. Had they gone with him? I mean, I don't know if Biff is even a quarter as iconic as as he is now. You look at some of these iconic 80s villains and obviously for me johnny lawrence comes to mind immediately i just i don't know if anyone is anywhere near as bad in terms of a high school bully as biff Tannen. and then when you start to get into like buford and things like that that's a whole and obviously um i mean um uh, (laughs) 1985 a (laughs) biff that's just it's just a whole other level of just the portrayal of a character and that man just gives you a masterclass in each of these movies. And then he just kind of like doesn't want to talk about it anymore, which is also weird, but I could understand it, you know, being pestered by people and, and the questions and, but I love Tom Wilson. I love what he brings to this movie. It's one of the things that I came to appreciate even more as I grew older. Cause when you're younger, the villain is just, oh yeah, we hate him, we hate Biff, you know, Marty's a good guy, we want him to, you know, but it's one of the things that you really come to appreciate, you you come to appreciate how much a good villain elevates a film, elevates a story, and it's just a, another one of those magical ingredients.
0: Truly is, and like, it is unfortunate for at least the longest time that he had a very, I guess, antagonistic when I not antagonistic like, like he had a mixed uh response to the legacy of the Biff character because whenever people came up to him they would just want him to say call me a butthead um uh, say like make a tree and leave or get out of here and everything like so it's like it seems like he's come around to it and he's kind of accepted the fandom and everything um and apparently, like he's like the sweetest person in the world, which is even funnier because you think like a bit, but just being such a monster in certain aspects. Like I, I, I can't wait for the day that I want. I want a situation to happen so I can yell at somebody like you're supposed to be in Switzerland, you little son of a bitch. <laughs> you get kicked out of another boarding school. Exactly, and like I, like that's never gonna happen. But like if I, if it does happen, I will relish in that moment because of. Uh, Thomas Wilson's performance here and if I ever get a chance to meet him I would talk about other roles he's done like hey, what was it like to voice the character that killed Robin's parents in Batman the Animated Series
1: oh yeah, that's right he was not Batman the Animated Series the, yeah. the thing that immediately comes to mind for me is Freaks and Geeks holy shit I totally forgot yeah, about he, that he's the gym teacher
0: wow, what a hole <laughs> <laughs> now, ladies and gentlemen, this is just that's just a glimpse into ninety percent of the conversations that we have, uh, whenever we're together. Um, yeah, and so then we have plenty of other actors we'll get into as we go along, but so how this idea came about? Like, all right, they needed a a way for Mario to go back in time in order to go back to nineteen fifty five, and. Initially, it was going to be an old refrigerator, and a nuclear blast was going to send them back in time. But they nixed the idea because they didn't want kids to be locking themselves in refrigerators.
1: Understandable. Understandable. It's also yeah. Just, it's also just not nearly as good of an idea as having it be a car.
0: Right, and like I think it was Zemeckis who said, "Like, yeah, oh, that's just a silly idea to have a, a refrigerator go off near a nuclear explosion." And then Indiana Jones 4 happens, and you're like, huh, that's really strange. <laughs>
1: Still not a good idea.
0: <laughs> no. Um, and so they end up deciding they wanted to make it a car. Now, Universal had the idea of, like, hey, we can uh, earn $75,000 if you make the car a Mustang. And the Bobs are like, no, because I doubt Doc would drive a Mustang. And so they settled on the DeLorean because of the futuristic look. And it is so curious because by the time in 1984, DeLoreans were no longer being made. They only made like what, like less than ten thousand of them, and because it, they went bankrupt because they were shoddily made.
1: Yeah, and and then the whole uh, the whole scandal with John DeLorean and everything kind of just made it this weird, infamous, failed car, and this kind of weird, very American '80s story. But the best thing about it, and I'm stealing this idea from, I think, another podcast. I I believe it was What the Flux. By the way, What the Flux is, is a Back to the Future podcast that just started this year. It is a really great podcast. They're really great people. Go check it out. Um, they release episodes every week, and they're really fun. Uh, I believe I'm stealing this idea from them. But the idea that the DeLorean is also a shitty car, just in real life, also makes it perfect as the time travel vehicle, because the the temptation is now to say, oh yeah, the DeLorean would be a Tesla because it's kind of that futuristic. But in reality, the DeLorean, if they made it today, it would have to be some kind of shitty failed experiment of a car in order for it to work with Doc Brown, having been the one who transformed it into a time machine. So I think that's one of the perfect things, another perfect casting this time of an inanimate object.
0: Yeah, I mean, to the point that, like, so I believe the DeLorean was first manufactured in Northern Ireland because of just the cheap labor at the time and the, the townspeople or, like, the city people that was tasked to do it. Automotive, uh, construction was not their forte. Um, and the, the gull, I think it's gull doors, the, like, the doors that open upward, uh, would, they wouldn't stay up all the time. And so, Cast and crew kept hitting their head because the the doors would eventually just slide down and crack them in the head if they're standing underneath them. Um, and also, they just like even as cool as they are, they're very impractical. If you pull into a shopping mall and you're parked on both sides of your car, you're not getting in.
1: Yeah, and you don't think about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, until
1: you're in that situation.
0: Precisely, um, and so and then they wanted the idea of like to retrofit, it so it's not completely like it's meant to be. Handmade. So that's why we have all the different kinds of parts that are built on top of it to makes it the time machine um, that we know today. And even though, like, the, obviously the time machine that was famous before this, like, you had H.G. Wells's time machine, which was a great design and still iconic, but it stays in one place and the world changes around it. Uh, Doctor Who, you have a police box. And then, obviously, with this, like, okay, we wanted to be mobile and... Of course, they had to soup up the car because the engine was not that good. Like, it's. Like, it shouldn't have worked. Like, it should have fallen on their face. And yet, just by perseverance and sheer will, that thing became iconic.
1: And from all accounts on set, there were many times where it didn't work. And no. they, they had a hell of a time with that car. And. I can only imagine the frustration with dealing with something like all of a sudden they're in the middle of a take and the gullwing door falls. Like it's just, it's so stupid, but it, you couldn't have this movie without it. So all the pain that they had to go through to get it to work in the end, it was all worth it because the pain is temporary, but the film is forever.
0: Exactly. And there's a moment, I think it's one of the behind the scenes, like it's an unused take where it's the process version of the car. Like where it's like, It's a stripped-down version of the car, and they have the background moving past it. And it's after Marty has left Peabody's farm, (laughs) and he's, like, he's convincing himself, like, everything's just this weird dream. And the gold door opens, (laughs) and T. Fox is like, ah, and just rolls out of the car. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. (sighs) Like, I just imagine, like, that probably happened on a daily basis with actual DeLorean drivers. Oh, yeah. Uh, And... I love how they become those are those are boutique items I think there's a company down in Texas that bought all the rest of the spare parts and now special order builds them for people who are willing to spend the cash for them imagine having
1: that kind of cash
0: well yeah I, I mean if this year went um uh rather normally i would like there is a company that I found that rents out their time machine for events and the idea was like i found them on twitter like through like a friend of a friend like works for them and the idea was like i was gonna rent one of the time machines to shoot a video as a uh, promo for this uh but knowing how things changed this year and just money became a lot tighter like i can't spend to rent out a time machine for a day to shoot a video god that would have been uh- fucking cool though <laughs> I'll, like uh, I still may do that just for just for my own personal pleasure. It would have been masturbatory, but you know what <laughs> like i I'm like, like I'm making myself happy, and so that's what I'm gonna do, yeah, before the timeline skewed
1: into this horrible tangent, there was a timeline where none of the events of this year would have happened. I still would have been on the island. you would have rented that Delorean, and we would have shot that promo, and that would have been fucking awesome,
0: yes. <laughs> Now I'm just thinking for our friend back in college, dude, it's fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you, you never expect a Mark Morello reference on the podcast. <laughs> no, and like, I know that just the inside joke for you and I, I know people don't get that, but like, it was just like uh, a a friend of ours uh from college just like he would just like add like every kind of anything that's relatively cool he would just end, like dude it's fucking awesome it, <laughs>
1: it, 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 it's it's always great when you become a meme and then you realize that you be, you've you become a meme and then you embrace the meme and that was the most important part of that so yeah it's fucking awesome
0: <laughs> oh jeez, and so and then like one of the other people like one of the big uh contributors to this movie is obviously he was photographed by Dean Cundey and he it would, this is like the first, like no, this is the second movie that he photographed for Robert Zemeckis and Dean Cundey is my favorite cinematographer, like my top ten favorite movies, three of them are photographed by Dean Cundey. Um Like he obviously worked with John Carpenter as well as and along with Steven Spielberg and so I love the look of this movie. I, I, I think it's iconic. I mean how in 1985 it looks a little bit harsher like a lot of hard, like harder light but then when you get to 1955 it becomes a lot warmer and a lot more welcoming like as you imagine like these like you said before an idealized version of the 1950s
1: exactly and it just feels so warm and inviting and it's it's the sheer nostalgia goggles if the movie were made today the 80s would look all bright and vibrant kind of the way they they look in uh season three of stranger things where everything's kind of alive and bright and and colorful but the '80s in this film, yeah, they're, it's portrayed as kind of harsh and gritty, and uh, uh, not not grim dark, or not not dark, not a dark and gritty uh, <laughs> a dark and gritty <laughs> reboot of the '80s. But it kind of has, yeah, it's a trashy feel. It just kind of feels like all the trash of of the decades prior just kind of still sitting there, which is an interesting commentary on kind of the way a small town like that kind of evolves throughout the decades
0: yeah and, and like this is another example of the 1980s being obsessed with the 1950s like you had other movies like Gremlins which seems very 1950s like and then other movies like that this like they had this kind of I had like also like you know it's a little bit early like American graffiti um it is curious to see what the mindset of those filmmakers were like at the time. I mean, one of the earliest podcasts I ever did was discussing nostalgia go all the way back you near know, the beginning of the show to, uh, myself and Richard Jackson were talking about that, and yeah, like if this was made today, like it would just be like the the audience I suppose, would like get cancer from all the neon like all the vapor <laughs> tubes and everything like I, I can't stand this like i I'm smelting because of this. <laughs> Um, and then we have obviously Alan Silvestri as the composer of Back to the Future, the entire trilogy. And even though Spielberg was not sold initially on him being the composer for this movie.
1: And imagine that. Imagine not being sold on the man who delivered this score. But I guess really all it takes is is just one listen to that main theme and then, you know, Spielberg's right on board and I couldn't imagine it any other way. I couldn't imagine this with a contemporary kind of synthy score. I couldn't imagine it with only the pop songs. I couldn't imagine it only being period songs. You need that score. That score is like the invisible actor in this movie that kind of made it all come together and it's kind of the glue that holds it all together because you're hopping between the 80s and the 50s and the one thing that remains the same is that that great score that you hear initially in the parking lot, it comes back at the right moments. And it by the end of the movie, when Marty's racing towards that clock tower, that music just has you right there. It doesn't matter how many times you've seen it. So this score is, I keep saying this, one of the most important parts of this movie. It's amazing how many Elements of this movie, if you take one of them away, the movie falls apart because that element just adds something so special. And the score, Alan Silvestri's score, is one of the huge, huge, huge things that if you took it away, this movie just
0: suddenly doesn't work quite as well. I absolutely agree. I mean, like when they were test screening it, they were using temp tracks for the preview screenings and Spielberg was kind of a little nervous like I don't know like will we have the music in time it will be appropriate for the movie by the time they got to another screening they had Alan's score in there or at least parts of it and Spielberg was like wow whosever music it is like that's what your music should be and Zemeckis replied like that is the music we're using (laughs) and like, if you want to find out more about the soundtrack of the movie Check out the podcast, the soundtrack show. There's a three-part yes. series on the Back to the Future, and it is glorious. I mean, the, the entire show, the soundtrack show, is one of the most in-depth musical educations you can get for any kind of movies, and especially if you this movies is this ilk, like this, or Star Wars, or Superman, or Indiana Jones, or Casablanca. Like, I know one of those things is not like the other, but <laughs> it's it's it is. Like Marty says, it's been educational listening to that show.
1: Oh, yeah, I love that show too. I love that even when we don't talk about it, we still listen to a lot of the same podcasts too. So that's, yeah, I love that show.
0: I'm not going to lie, when you mentioned what the flux and you're still going on, I. Did download their first episode while you were speaking. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to download this. Uh, like, got a recommendation from you. it's yes. worth a download. Yes,
1: everyone listen to What the Flux. It's it's one of my <laughs> current favorite podcasts, and they're they're really nice people. And I actually uh, I actually did some music for them and, and a couple of liners
0: too. So yeah, check them
1: out. They are they're really good people.
0: Fantastic. And so the movie opens up, and we have. This pretty impressive piece of visual storytelling with all the clocks clicking in Doc Brown's garage in 1985 in Hill Valley, California. And it's, there's so much great visual storytelling. It's set, like setting up things that are going to be paying off later on in the movie. Like, this is not a wasted moment in this movie when it comes to storytelling. And like how, and also when eventually Marty comes in. It dulls it out of who Marty is, like we get little uh glimpses of what kind of personality he is until eventually when he plugs himself into this gigantic amplifier that should probably kill him, but he strikes one chord on his guitar and blows him back, and if he's not dead, he has got severe uh hearing loss
1: oh yeah, there's a video on YouTube called "Could You Survive Back to the Future?" Yeah, that that thing would have killed him. <laughs> <That> <laughs> absolutely, would have killed him. But here, here it's just a goof. But the best part about this whole scene is that it was a symptom of the reshoots, or it it was a it was a byproduct of the reshoots. They didn't have the budget; they had to kind of cut back on some of the sets that they were going to be using. So they decided to scrap an earlier scripted opening scene in which Marty would have been in his classroom. And that kind of tied into the whole atomic, you know, uh, uh, driving onto the atomic test site scenario for the final act. Uh, So this whole scene almost didn't happen. And that's crazy to think about because it's such a perfect opening. And it's it's so it it gives us the the iconic amplifier moment. And then it gives us I'm late for school. (laughs) It gives us that great moment. And it almost didn't happen. And he could have just been sitting in class, which is frankly boring.
0: Yeah, it's not as visually dynamic, and it's not as great as a storytelling opening. And it's so curious, like, like obviously we see, we see somebody hanging off a clock, and the on uh, a clock in there, we see the Libyans be, uh, um, denying that they stole plutonium or plutonium being stolen. We see the plutonium hiding under uh, uh, Doc's uh, bed, and it's. It's interesting, like, I I realized this on this this rewatch for this episode. So we first introduced to Marty's feet, and we hear his dialogue off-camera, and then we slowly get introduced to him. And I I don't know what this was, but my very first, like, kind of real short film I did, I introduced the characters by their feet and their dialogue off-camera, and then eventually show them afterwards. And that was not intentional. That must have been just a really strange, subconscious thing that happened when I made my first short film. (laughs) It's just ingrained at this point. It it must be. And then, of course, like he gets a call from Doc saying, hey, uh, come to the Twin Pine Pine Mall um, later on this evening. And then that's when all the clocks click and they're all at 8 a.m. But they're exactly 25 minutes slow. And like you said, he's late for school. And then we jump into the power of love. And Huey Lewis in the news was... One of the artists that was uh, a key contributor to the soundtrack by writing two songs, obviously The Power of Love and Back in Time. And Hugh Lewis was such an important uh, fixture for this movie that A, uh, he, he shows up in this movie as a character and did a music video for this movie.
1: It's one of those great tie-ins where you have a really good pop song that you can get on the radio for this big upcoming summer blockbuster movie and it's kind of one of those things where the song elevates the movie and then the movie then elevates the song and it's just a continuous kind of cycle and they're inseparable at this point you hear the power of love you're thinking back to the future and then you have back in time which is another stroke of genius because at first huey lewis says i can't write a song called back to the future And Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale go, oh, no, that's fine. We don't want you to. But then I guess after getting a feel for what the movie really was, he came back with Back in Time, which is just the perfect kind of theme song and way to kind of cap off everything. So two home runs as far as I'm concerned by Huey Lewis, and they alone make the soundtrack worth having.
0: Definitely. And I I don't know how... Substantiate this is because apparently Hugh Lewis was approached to do music for Ghostbusters the year prior, turned it down and went to Ray Parker Jr. And we all know how iconic the Ghostbusters theme by Ray Parker Jr. is to this day. So I wonder if it like when this opportunity came about, he was not going to pass it up because of the success of it. And I'm pretty sure there was some kind of litigation between Ray Parker Jr. and Huey Lewis because of song similarities.
1: Yes, because, yeah, I Want a New Drug, how they kind of have the same kind of chord progression and feel going on. Yeah, that's a totally, that's one of those things where as soon as you hear it, it's like, yeah, you can't unhear that. So I do wonder if that played a factor into it. And maybe Huey Lewis saying, yeah, I guess this time I'll do the song so that they don't you know, plagiarize me. If that is indeed what happened, I don't know. I'm not actually as big into Ghostbusters uh, as you are. So I can't really speak to that. But yeah, I Want a New Drug is the song. That song, I believe Huey Lewis has said, was the song he initially played for Bob Zemeckis. And Bob said, no, this doesn't work for the opening. I need something that's a little bit more upbeat and a little bit happier. And Huey goes, "Oh, you want something in a major key?" And then he goes and writes "The Power of Love."
0: Yeah, it, it is fascinating how music works. So, just changing a key of a song completely radicalizes a a feeling of you have responding to it. like, like you said, like oh, a major key or a minor key, like. Like, um, on the soundtrack show, like we mentioned before, David W.S. Collins, he's talking about the tritone, which was often referred to as the Devil's Note in Middle Ages and forbidden to use because you thought it would it would cause Satan to come to Earth or what have you, so it was banned. And so many metal bands, including, like, Black Sabbath and Slayer, have built songs around that. But David W.S. Collins, like, he double, double Collins, blah, 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 blah. blah. Collins, yes, has uh, said, like, no, it's a neutral it's a neutral note, but, like, if you come out of it, whether in a minor or major, it completely eff- uh, changes it, and he plays examples in this score of, that Silvestri does in this movie, where it's like, oh, here, it's happy. Here, it's evil. Like, when the Libyans show up later on at the mall. Um, so it is just fascinating how music works like that, and it's kind of, like like we keep saying iconic and legendary but even though just this little montage of Marty going to school like how many times you've seen parodies and rip-offs of just this moment yeah you see, you see
1: that moment replicated so many times because how cool does he look it he just looks so cool and everyone who has ever seen this wants to do that they want to sketch on the back of a car on the back of a pickup truck and you know in real life obviously please do not do that you will die no. you will you you your face will not look quite the same after that and no you will not be uh riding by a, a jazzer sized studio and and all the women will not be waving to you so it, it, it just <laughs> it just won't work out that way but it's it's an <laughs> we keep saying iconic it's not hyperbole it is back to the future that's just the way it is you know it's it, every element of this movie is so finely tuned and it just works so well and you want to be marty mcfly in so many of these moments and that's another big part of the appeal of this movie is is just kind of the aspirational i just want to look that cool i want to drive that car that looks cool I want to travel back in time. You know, I I want to see what my parents were like when they were kids. It's aspirational and it's grounded enough to where you feel like this could be plausible. It doesn't get too far into the sci-fi, which, which is, I think a big part of the reason why it resonates so well for me, because as soon as something becomes a little too sci-fi, that's where it starts to lose me. But this is the sweet spot where the sci-fi is just almost kind of, uh, just a, a, a symptom of the story. It just kind of happens. Time travels the problem and it wasn't intentional. So I think a lot of, a lot of the, the, the coolness factor for Marty and some of these aspirational moments to me is, is kind of what really kind of hits, makes it hit on a different level.
0: Definitely. I mean, if you don't sketch anyway, and especially don't sketch behind a cop car because you will be caught. Like, I'm sorry, Barty. Like, that was a dumb thing for him to do later on when he leaves Jennifer. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it is like like you want it. like you said, you want to be that cool in that moment there. And then we finally meet Jennifer. Um, and I, I, it's so curious, like, how Claudia Wells was not the original Jennifer either. No. I'm not mistaken.
1: No, she wasn't. It was Melora Hardin, actually, who was cast – Malohar, and I believe she's uh, she's in the office, I believe.
0: That is correct. And, like, they wanted Claudia Wells, but she was doing a sitcom at the time, and by the time they had gotten around to doing the reshoots with with Michael J. Fox, uh, that sitcom was cancelled, and the original actress is far too tall compared to Michael J. Fox, who's not a tall man. Um, so they cast Claudia Wells instead because she was more resembling in his height, and he's like, so and Marty's like, oh, don't worry, Doc's clocks was about 25 minutes slow, but that's when we run into another MVP of this movie, <laughs> James Tolkien as Principal Strickland.
1: Oh man, Strickland. An iconic principle. You know, you think of movie principles. I don't I don't know. Strickland tops my list. I mean, it's it is my favorite movie, but just think about a man who wakes up in the morning and just Thinks about discipline. That's the first <laughs> thing he thinks about. Discipline. He loves discipline. He probably wears the same exact uniform suit every day. He doesn't have any hair. He's no nonsense. No frills. Probably was in the military. Definitely loves discipline.
0: Yeah, he wakes up in, to with a smile so he can get it over with for the day. <laughs> 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 and and I, I love it. Like I love how his this scene, where we introduce him, is all done in one shot. Where he, like, he, like, always oh, Kramer slides into frame to catch them <laughs> being uh, tardy for uh, class, and then when he, he try, he, he tries to be civil to Marty, but Marty does sass him. However, Strickland responds and <laughs> just doubling down with his discipline. Saying, like you're the, you're a slacker, and you remind me of your father when he went here, he was a slacker too. And you're not gonna amount to anything, no uh, more to anything in Hill Valley, coming nose to nose with Marty. And that's one of the most important things about
1: Marty's characterization is that he's not a pushover. He's even gonna kind of be a smart aleck to Mr. Strickland, who if he were a wimp and if he were a loser and if he were a George McFly He'd be afraid of Mr. Strickland. He wouldn't dare talk back. He wouldn't dare be a smart aleck, but he is. And that's one of the important things about Marty. He's cool. He has a backbone. He'll stand up for himself. Maybe he doesn't have the most confidence in his art and in his work, but he's not going to back down. You know, he's ready to to put up his fists and fight Biff. I'm sure he's willing to do the same with needles. So... That's one of the most important things. Going back to the Karate Kid, Daniel's not a pushover. He fights back. And sometimes he'll strike first. And that's why a lot of people go back and say, oh, Daniel was the real villain. But what it really is is that he's the protagonist who has a backbone and he fights back and he stands up for himself. And that's part of why Marty is so different from George. But he still has that lack of self-confidence, which then comes back full circle at the end of the movie.
0: It is really brilliant storytelling, but he is confident in his musical abilities initially anyway, where him and his band, the Pinheads, uh, try out for a battle of the bands that are led by uh, Huey Lewis. Um, and I guess Huey Lewis is kind of upset with him because they, I guess they're performing too loud of a cover of his song. Uh, I think with- Huey
1: was really upset because he's wearing one of the ugliest suit jackets ever.
0: Like, it's, ah, uh, like, I, I don't think Norm from Cheers would wear that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it it totally, it, it just looks like a, like a ugly couch or something from the 70s. <laughs> it looks like
0: it's itchy. It, it does. Like, oh, yeah.
1: It looks real stuffy. But there's a lot of interesting wardrobe going on. If you just look at that panning shot of Marty walking to the <laughs> stage, that band that he walks by, some of the hair and the pants going on there, it's real interesting.
0: Like he, he does a double take at the the other band he, that's coming up after him. He's like, wait, what? He really
1: does. And then he gets on stage with like 30 year old dudes who are somehow his band who I want to, that's what I want to know what the story is. I don't care about the, I don't need to know the story. Oh, how are Marty and Doc friends? Cause that feels lived in, but how are Marty and this band? How did they come together? That's what I want to know. Cause these dudes look like, like studio musicians from los angeles who he just called in a favor with somehow i don't know they have good equipment they have good gear and they know what they're doing but where did they come from are they his friends why why do they look like they're in their
0: 30s <laughs> I, I mean like you're not wrong i mean speaking of studio musicians the guy who's playing the bass i think it's what his yeah. name is paul hansen yes yeah
1: that was marty's uh, guitar teacher
0: or michael yeah Um, and so, like, and there is seen like, if you watch the special features, features, there is some behind-the-scenes footage of going over some lessons and everything, and who helped him, because Michael J. Fox did play the guitar since, like, I think he was, like, 14 years old, but you can always get better, and, like, the fact that Hanson was a teacher was able to help Michael J. Fox get even better at performing live, and especially playing for the camera. That's one of the...
1: Coolest things is that, yeah, you can look at his fingers and he's sinking right along, and I always appreciate that level of detail anytime that there is some sort of musical performance in a movie, being a musician myself, I appreciate that level of detail and that level of dedication, and he certainly didn't have to, especially with the schedule that that he was working on. He didn't have to learn how to sync all these guitar parts, but he did, and that's one of the things that just makes it all the more authentic and you wanna be Marty play in that guitar on that stage at the enchantment under the sea dance i mean here sure you also want to be marty playing with paul hansen and kevin bacon's photo double on drums but <laughs> but even more so in the, at that at the enchantment under
0: the sea dance seriously however they're denied entry into the battle bands because they're just too darn loud um which is a real blow to marty's ego there and he kind of doesn't wallow in it like he even he kind of calls out his own bitching about the fact that he's not that like he feels he's that trepidatious sending out his audition tape to any kind of studio and jennifer's just being the like the like one of the strongest things that anybody could be just as a, an emotional support system is like hey i know you're good you know you're good just just go for it and even though we do have like uh alpha of a meme where um marty looks at a passing uh people his girlfriend's right next to him <laughs> while his way and, more attractive girlfriend is right there which which is just baffling i'm like i'm waiting for like Jeffrey to slap him like but i love like her line delivery it's just like that's good advice marty it's like all right yeah you caught me i i screwed up there
1: and and, uh, and attractiveness aside She's just a really good person for him to have in his life. She doesn't get a lot to do in this movie. And it's unfortunate that we don't get Claudia Wells in part two. But I really love her take on Jennifer. And I really love that Marty has Jennifer because he, quite frankly needs jennifer and it's a shame that jennifer is a little bit underserved obviously she's not in the majority of the movie because it takes place in the 50s so we don't get to see a whole lot of her but i really do wish that we got to spend a little bit more time with jennifer in part two because i don't care what they say they felt handcuffed by putting jennifer in the car at the end of part one i just think that's a little bit lazy on their part. You could have served that character a little bit better. I think it just makes it even more fun if you get Jennifer in on the adventure because she's not just a throwaway character. She really does add something to Marty's life and she's a good positive influence for him to have in his life and a good support. But I felt that it could have even gone beyond that. But that's just my opinion on kind of... Uh, an underserved character who I feel deserved a little bit better. Um, but I really do appreciate the moments we do get of Marty and Jennifer and kind of the warmth that's there and the support that she, she gives him. So y- him looking at the other girls as they pass by Dick move. One of those moments where I don't want to be Marty in that, in that situation.
0: no, and our just our admiration for Claudia Wells and the character Jennifer. I mean, it's just a chapel of love, that's for sure. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh man! You think I? You think you could have the singers tonight? But no, I, 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 I have to now, have to have at least a few of them. Now the Elizabeth shoe was on the other foot. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Oh geez like I, I only oh, if we were watching the kids, this would been a real adventure's babysitting. Okay, <laughs> that was forced. <laughs> that was hand fisted. I crowbarred that into the into it, position.
1: Insert Joe Gibb reference here. <laughs> <laughs> you know what this movie needed a carjacker.
0: I, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, like the the time she does get carjacked in part two by
1: Biff. Yeah, that's true. Uh, could have been Joe Gibb. Marty could have played the blues in that club.
0: He could have no. I like, see. Now we got we got to rewrite part two. Now, uh, um, yeah, it, it is unfortunate that like yeah she shows up in three scenes in total. Like we first meet her out here, and then at the end. And it's kind of disappointing that you kind of wanted her to be in a little bit more, and like I guess you can, the label thing you can, the thing you can. The sequel idea, you didn't have to pick up on that thread from the end of the last movie. You could have had a completely different adventure. Like, they, they could just have the adventures in time. That's why I like how the video game opens up a year, year later and it tells its own story. Like, you could have done that in part two and not to felt handcuffed that of just literally knocking out Jennifer and just moving her incapacitated body to one place to another in part two. Yeah,
1: you, you, you really could have done many other things other than, ah, woman is useless, knock her out. <laughs> you, you could have done so many different things, you know? it's. Uh, it, it, I guess that's just not what they were interested in doing at that time, but I'd like to think maybe if this movie were being made today, that that would be a thing where, yeah, we'd make sure that Jennifer has something to do other than just being arm candy you know she is like i said she is a very supportive and and very kind of level-headed kind of uh, uh an influence that marty needs that give him that little extra push and motivation you know that he ultimately has to come to realize for himself but it it does build out marty's world a little bit in a way because yeah we don't know a whole lot about him, other than his relationship to Doc and his relationship to his family, we don't know who his friends are. He mentions going camping with the guys. Who are the guys? Are they the thirty-year-olds in the band? <laughs> is he going camping with Kevin Bacon's photo double? Is I I these are the questions. But she adds another element to Marty's world. So, it you know just in that fact, Jennifer is uh, an integral part of part of the movie, because if not, uh, we wouldn't have you know uh, another key element. Of something that Marty is, he desperately wants to get back to the 80s. You would question why does he, why is he in such a rush to get back to the 80s other than, you know, advancements in technology and, you know, the fact that he, you know, is kind of freaked out from traveling in time. No, he has a great girlfriend that he wants to get back to.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, like, two things. One, we better be careful, like, saying, like, we want more. Uh, female characters in here. We don't want to sound like a virtue signaling to some people. Um oh, come because on. People f- I know. I I I fully I fully agree with you like that. They, I know they, some people just
1: they 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 literally have to just knock her out because they don't know what to do with her in the second movie. It's a little bit you could there could have been something more.
0: I'm just glad it's like not like a cartoon hammer they hit knock her over the head with. I'm just glad it's a literally a little bit more technologically sound. It's not like um like, hey, Jennifer, what's over there? What? Clonk. Okay, <laughs> now we can move on. Uh, and you're right. No, yeah, it, it would have been a lot. Of, like, I I kind of want to see what an adventure with Jennifer playing an integral part of, like, uh, running interference and helping Marty save the, save their future kid. Um, but also, when you say Kevin Bacon's, like, photo double, I'm just imagining it's just a standee of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> a cardboard cutout. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hey, Kevin, go along. They throw a football and just knocks him over in the middle of the woods. Like, good catch, Kevin. See, that's the kind of offbeat humor
1: that a lesser 80s movie would have had.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, like, if it was Crispin Glover playing Martin McFly, I think that's something he would have suggested.
1: <laughs> yeah, why don't we have a, just a cardboard cutout of, of Kevin Bacon?
0: <laughs> like, Crispin, you're starting to scare me. Yeah, um, yeah spe-
1: specifically Footloose Kevin Bacon when, he, when he's <laughs> doing his dance freakout in that warehouse.
0: Uh, like, oh, that total uh, dance double that's totally not Kevin Bacon? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, the one who becomes a, suddenly a gymnast in in the, the that little warehouse? That movie is just... Oh. <laughs> you see, like, that's a movie that's of its moment. It is iconic, but it's definitely of its moment. Yeah, and what a moment it was. <laughs> yeah, it's the Kenny Loggins and the Bonnie Tyler soundtrack that really cements it in its time period. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, jo- John Lithgow in that one, too, yeah
0: yes uh and so but like obviously we finally get to meet um crispin glover as the older george were flying who's still being bullied by his old high school chum biff Tannen, as they argue over the fact that even though biff was drinking and driving total the the car he's he's saying to george why didn't you tell me i had a blind spot i could have been killed
1: I just hope that uh, Biff's insurance is going to pay for the damage.
0: Oh, my insurance? Hey, but my insurance, it's your car. I want to know who's going to pay for this. I spilled beer all over this when I was when in that car, especially. Who's going to play my cleaning bill?
1: That's one of the things that as a kid, I kind of glossed over because sometimes in movies when adults were talking, I didn't always listen. But then getting older and realizing, oh, wait, he was drinking and driving. What the hell? (laughs) (laughs) Why is he, first of all, why is he drinking and driving in someone else's car? Why does he need to borrow George's car? And just the sheer absurdity of the entire situation where George is now being blamed for uh, another man drinking and driving and and getting into a car wreck and not realizing that, shocker, cars have blind spots. (laughs)
0: yeah and even though george says like um and now biff i never noticed that this car had any blind spot when i drove it um but i think like the miraculous thing is that knowing how that car looks but biff got away without a scratch
1: yeah and that's that that's the most hilarious thing he got into this car wreck because he was drunk driving and then he's just standing in the mcfly kitchen drinking another beer and chastising george and Eating M Ms, like it's 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 kind of funny how people like that just kind of make it through situations like that unscathed, and you know they they never get what they deserve, and certainly drunk driving and putting other people's lives at stake, and yeah, Biff he's just in the kitchen being a shithead. You know he just kind of just kind of floats through life. One of the things about this that's interesting, we get the interplay between Marty and Biff. And that also feels like a kind of lived in, yeah, I know this asshole, he's around here all the time, he's a pain in the ass. But one of the things that you never really think about and I think about a lot now when I watch these movies is Biff has a son Marty's age, obviously, right? So, where is he? A son son or a daughter, I should say. Because he has a grandson in part two.
0: He has Griff. So where is biff's kid um if we want to keep it really singular i like maybe needles is his son i don't know See, that's
1: that's i don't know it's like it makes sense because needles is the biff analog i guess for the 80s but right. needles is the last name so it, uh. it, it's douglas j needles so unless there's a you know a step situation there or you know maybe there's a you know biff is divorced or whatever you want to say that's an interesting thing that i would like to you know if i had a chance to ask a question to the bobs i'd say what's biff's kid doing in the 80s you know who are they is it a son is it a daughter how do they relate to marty do they go you know they live in the same town they have to go to the same school right why don't we ever see biff's kid
0: that's an interesting question for sure and and it's going back to something uh, going back to something what you said before where like you said Marty has a spine he has no problem talking back to somebody and it seems like he wants to say something to Biff yet he doesn't.
1: Yeah. He just doesn't want to cause more problems for his dad.
0: Right. Like do you feel like He says something in the past, or do you feel like he doesn't feel confident enough even standing up to Biff at that point?
1: I would have to think that just by growing up and observing how this man just tortures his father and just torments him constantly, he probably just realized that, yeah, if this were me standing up for myself, I could, you know, take this guy in a fight. But my dad's not going to be able to, and I don't want my dad to have to suffer the consequences because I mouthed off to this guy. You know, probably that kind of thing. I don't think otherwise. I don't think he would have any problem. You see, kind of, he's smart with Mister Strickland, and that's a guy who can give him detention. You know, Biff doesn't really have any authority over Marty, but he just kind of doesn't want to go there because it's probably just going to cause more problems for everyone.
0: That's fair. And so then we had the dinner when we introduced everybody else in the family. Uh, even though there was a delete scene where uh, it was a was a door to door salesman that uh duped uh george into buying what the hell did he buy anyway it's, some kind it, of thing yeah
1: peanut brittle it's uh one of the neighbors rings the doorbell and says hey mcfly my kid's selling peanut brittle for girl scouts uh it's you know however many dollars a box i put you down for a case and george is like okay so that <laughs> that explains the peanut brittle and by the way This is how cool I was in middle school. I went to so many different stores looking for Back to the Future related items, just kind of common items that are still being sold in stores or at least were in in the mid 2000s. And uh, I I found like Doc Brown's The Cat Clock that was just being sold in like a Walgreens. I found it and I found that peanut brittle, that exact peanut riddle in a store and I had a box of that peanut brittle, and I don't know if I ever ate any of it, but I, I sure had that box and I was, pr- I was proud of that box because I just found it out in the wild, just going around looking for back to the future related stuff. So that peanut brittle, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, you can, you could buy that in like
0: 2004. That's astounding. Um, and then we introduced the rest of the McFly family, uh, Obviously, we have Mark McClure as his brother and Wendy Jo Sperber as his sister. Um, obviously, Mark McClure, known as Jimmy Olsen in the Superman movies uh, from the 1970s and 80s. And Wendy Jo Sperber, who was in the Bob's first movie, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and she like nearly steals the show in that movie as being the most obsessive Beatles fan in the world right before. It, the whole thing is about these teenagers trying to get tickets to see the beatles play on the ed sullivan show and it is a lot of fun and it's very sweet and i highly recommend it if you just a fan of the bobs or you like the beatles in general but this is when we're introduced to like how kind of marty's family's in a little bit of disarray
1: yeah it's this weird dysfunctional everyone's all over the place 80s family where they have the tv on during dinner uh you know Lorraine is drinking vodka you have Dave about to go to his to his job uh at at Burger King or actually is he does he work at Burger King or McDonald's is is that a Burger King or McDonald's outfit
0: I think it's a McDonald's outfit because I don't think Burger King was a product placement I think it was like literally it was filmed in that location next to yeah the garage of uh doc
1: yeah they just let they let them film there for free if they could just Yeah, because I've always thought that's a McDonald's uniform, but I've always I always hear people, especially you know people on podcasts, say that Dave works at Burger King, and that's been one of the things that I'm like, no, I feel like that's a McDonald's uniform. But either way, that's hardly a. a, I mean that that is his characterization in this movie, though, that he works in fast food. Um, but that's besides the point. A very kind of quintessentially disconnected 80s family where everyone's doing their own thing and the mother is is you know her her best years are far behind her and she's just (laughs) married to this sad sack of a man who uh is is just so out there and maybe not even not even kind of on the same plane as as everyone else and just cracking up Uh, at the Honeymooners episode that he's probably seen a million times. Marty clearly in this scene is an outsider. He doesn't even, he barely even says anything. He has such little dialogue because that was just the way the scene had to be because of the shooting schedule. He'd be so tired coming in after family ties that they just gave him some, some real easy shoots like this one where he doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue. He's just kind of sitting there observing and that kind of speaks to how marty is kind of this character who is just constantly reacting to things throughout the film and is this kind of observer of different time periods and all these different characters and things just kind of happen to him he's he's not always an active participant so even in his own family he's kind of this outsider observer which is interesting when you really go deep and think about who marty is as a character
0: yeah i mean like that's why like I think it was on, I think, the Q&A commentary they, uh, between the Bobs saying, like, the reason why Marty's not in a lot of the coverage for this scene is because, yeah, like, he had just came in late from the shoot at Family Ties. so That's why he's shot in a lot of singles. And, like, when we cut to all the footage of the scene, like, all the other characters are in two shots for the most part, and they're all together. And it's only, like, that one wide shot at the end where we see all of them together. And it shows like it sets up the chairman of the sea dance that she that Lorraine never chased boys and uh, oh, uh, Uncle Joey's in prison. And finally, the reason why George and Lorraine end up together is that she pitied him. That's why they end up together. It wasn't love that she felt bad for George. And that's why she fell in love with him. It's a very different emotion how it turns out to later on in the movie. It's the power of love. (sighs) I can't
1: even be mad at that one. (laughs) You know, Huey Lewis didn't know it, but he really was onto something when he wrote that song. Because if you want to think about what are the main messages of this movie, it is kind of the power of love. This couple at the beginning of this movie is not in love. They are clearly not in love and this marriage, you know, I couldn't imagine it lasting too much longer than after the kids are all moved out of the house, you know, but then you go to the end of the movie and that right there, the power of love, that's where it comes in. It's a curious thing. Uh, part of me wishes I
0: was like a shock jack from a K-Rock <laughs> with a soundboard <laughs> so I could just cue that up for just such punchlines like that. <laughs> Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen this is k-rock in the morning here i'm your host tim rudy and we're back talking about back to the future it's the morning zoo crew Uh, (laughs) only we won't pretend like we report on like uh uh, an actual murder and get in trouble and everything which has happened with with a couple people out in california um but speaking of the radio uh, Marty is woken when he's listening. Well, he's not woken by his radio, but the radio is going off when he gets a phone call from Doc who chastised him saying, Hey, did you forget our meeting? And he's like, uh, no, don't be silly. Um, and eventually goes out to the Twin Pines Mall. But before we get there, after you speaking about George, I kind of get where the Ted characterization Stranger Things comes from now.
1: Yeah. Oh, I never thought about that. Never thought about that. And this is great because my wife and I are in the middle of a Stranger Things rewatch. We actually just started season three last night. So, ooh, I'm going to be looking at at, at Ted in a, in a little bit of a in a different light. That's interesting. That's very interesting.
0: Yeah, like like the first time I rewatched uh, the first time I went through season three, like how his wife like almost runs away and like has an affair with the character of Billy. But upon the second watch through, and I, I felt a little bit more that she, I felt a different emotion that she decided not to do that because of that, that shot of her POV looking at Ted with their daughter, like falling asleep in his lap when he's in his lazy boy, like, okay, that hits a little differently, but maybe we'll maybe before Stranger Things four comes out, we'll cover Stranger Things uh, three. Well, uh, we'll let the audience determine if we want, they want that to happen. Uh, And so we end up at the Twin Pines Mall and we see Einstein sitting uh, patiently outside a Doc Brown's van. And that's when he asks, Marty asks Einstein, hey, where's the doc? And on cue, the van opens up and reveals the time machine.
1: Yes, the iconic shot that was actually just recently being reshot for some mysterious Discovery Channel project. I don't know if you've actually heard about this. There's something happening next year on the Discovery Channel involving Back to the Future, and they were actually at the Puente Hills Mall recently reshooting this scene with a replica of Doc's truck and the DeLorean. And I mean, you think about some of the most iconic reveal shots in the history of, of cinema this is up there. It's dramatic. This is, this is as soon as you cut to that back of the truck opening and the DeLorean pulling out, this is where this movie changes. And I only wish that I could relive my first viewing of the movie so I could just have that moment of what the hell is, this? what is going on here? And I can only imagine what test audiences or what those audiences on 4th of July weekend 1985 what's going through their mind at this point because you know you know a little bit about the movie you know it's called back to the future you know it's 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 a steven spielberg production but you don't know you just you aren't ready for it at this point and just here it is
0: yeah and i know some smart ass is going to be like well how did doc get in the car if the goal door is prevented from opening up in the truck it's a movie <laughs> go with it well
1: you could, he probably just drove, was already in the car, drove the car into the back, and then had some sort of gadget that automatically closed the back of the truck. There, problem solved. Yeah. There's, that, that's mean, like, that's like a Reddit post that someone thinks they're so
0: clever and,
1: oh, how did he do, this? it's, it could be easily explained. He
0: invented a time machine. I think he can, evo- he can create a,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> he can, a door opener. I think he could, he
1: could figure this out. Right. There's also, there's, the bigger question is why. Why is he doing this? And it's because he has a flair for the dramatic. Because of course he does, because he's Doc Brown. He's yes. he's walk as as Bob Gale says, uh, he walks around like he's kind of conducting the orchestra of the world. And that's kind of just his thing. The other question is why is there so much smoke? And then people make the kind of low-hanging fruit weed joke of, oh, Doc is hot boxing in the back of the thing. <laughs> I mean, number one, exhaust. Number two, right. it, it's a time machine we know that at various points it emits a lot of smoke and ice and different things like that. So it could have been something coming out of those vents in the back. So w- w- all easily uh, explainable uh, uh, answers to these these questions that this shot alone uh, brings forth.
0: Yeah, I, I imagine there's got to be, like, if they don't have this idea, I should run this video. I should create a podcast called Will Actually, and it's just... <laughs> It's just nitpicks the entire time. It's just calling things out that, like, it's it, it'll be made for people who like Mythbusters, you know, the Killers of Joy. Um, and so it's just like, ah, man, it, it's ridiculous. And so we find out that the DeLorean is actually. He says it's going to be his biggest experiment. He puts Einstein in the uh, uh, DeLorean with a synced up watch between his and Einie's, closes it up. And it has a remote control car uh, of the DeLorean. he's able to re- remotely control it, and I guess it's just portrayed by high definition that you could totally tell it's a stunt driver with a dog uh, costume on behind the wheel of a car um, <laughs> but also like it's it's the one shot in the movie I hope to god there was it was done remotely and not a person behind the camera because there's this one shot when uh he's driving the car on the other side of the parking lot. And it comes screeching to a halt, like inches away from the camera. Like part of me, it's like I hope the god nobody was behind the camera, just in case if they the car was a little too slick and just it runs <laughs> over the person's head.
1: Yeah, we we lost Jim today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we like there was an incident.
0: <laughs> lives were lost, lessons were learned. <laughs> uh, and then, like, speaking of lives lost here, like so. Doc and Marty get in the direct path to the DeLorean here. If this didn't work, was Doc prepared to take him and Marty out if this thing failed?
1: I guess because he spent his his entire family fortune on this. This one moment. If this doesn't work, he's going down and he's bringing his best friend with him. (laughs) You know, they're they're a regular Thelma and Louise here, but that... (laughs) I've I've never really understood why he is literally just pulling Marty back into the path of the DeLorean, but if you want to look at it that way, he's the other side of the coin where he is so confident that this is going to work, that he is willing to put not only his life in jeopardy, but Marty's, because that's how confident he is. That's the kind of confidence that Marty will come to understand and come to have. But, for now, Doc is just insane in his confidence that not only is this going to work, but we're going to come out of this without having been
0: mowed down by my dog. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's just go with me. Imagine if it didn't work, and you work at one, you work at the JCPenney's, and you roll into the parking lot like, the following morning to open up, but you just see a dog barking and a DeLorean that's sitting on, that's parked over the top of two bodies. You're like, what happened here last night?
1: Yeah, there. that would be a situation where Now there would be like weird true crime podcasts about that incident and like people trying to uncover weird truths about what actually happened and how a dog ran over two people. But (laughs) it's 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 it is odd and is it's just one of Doc Brown's weird quirks, if you want to call it that. And then you also have the fact that they're literally standing over fire and they don't seem too bothered about it. Uh, Marty's foot at one point is is in the middle of a flame, but it was 1985, and they were doing the best they could.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, like if the True Crime podcast would be like the dude in the Max Headroom mask that hijacked their broadcast in Chicago in the mid 90s, and then this dog <laughs> kills man. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I I would chalk up Marty's foot being in the forest, because Sid Sheinberg... Love the response to the test screenings of this movie so much that he cut a month off the release date. It was supposed to come out in August, but he decided to put it out on the uh, July 3rd instead. And so they had nine weeks to finish the movie once that date was changed. And even Zemeckis admits there are some optical effects he does not uh, like because they didn't have time to make everything perfect before it released.
1: But that's one of the great things about this movie. It's not technically perfect, and a lot of times technical perfection is just boring. And this movie has a lot of character and these technical effects that maybe weren't all the way there yet. It gives it character and it gives us something else, something extra to talk about. Cause if it's technically perfect and the fire looks great and everything like that, then there's nothing really much to say aside from, yeah, it's cool. But Sid Sheinberg, man, what a quintessential goof at the studio who thinks he knows better than the filmmakers. I mean, we'll we'll bring him up later. I'm sure, but uh, that man is is just it. It's it's just the quintessential example of people who don't know what they're talking about, think they know what they're talking about, and nearly ruining one of the most iconic movies of its time.
0: And not that, to that disparage him too much. I mean, like he's the one who yanked Spielberg out of college to give him a TV career. He's the one who backed up Spielberg when they said like. Hey, uh Jaws is running over schedule and over budget, and Sid's like, nope, we're gonna keep going. Um, but his suggestions for this movie were baffling to say the least.
1: Yeah, it's almost as if he was just some random dude without any experience in the industry prior. Some of the suggestions that this dude is is said to have made, but he 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 denies some of it. But uh I guess we'll we'll leave that up to you to decide. But yeah this scene alone was one of the the more impactful scenes for me as a kid because it's just pure Marty and Doc together before all of the adventure, before everything. It's just seeing them interact for the first time in the 80s, which you don't really get that much of when you think about it. They're usually off in some other time period together. So seeing... 1985 doc and marty together before the events of this film really start to go into gear it's it's kind of special because you don't really get much more of that you don't really get much more of them just being them in the 80s
0: no it really is like even though much like uh jennifer and marty's scenes together they're brief but they it says so much about their character and, and like Sige Steinberg, there's a reason why the the offices where he worked at on Universal was called the Black Tower for a reason, uh, because of just how intimidating that office was. And with this, like, and then how Doc is so enthusiastic explaining how the time circuits work and how the flux capacitor is the one that helps make time travel possible. And then we have all the exposition of like the reason how he came up with the idea of the flux capacitor. Is he was hanging a clock. This porcelain was wet. He slipped. He 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 clonked his head, and he came to, he came to a revelation of the flux capacitor. He spent thirty years in his entire family's fortune in order to make it possible. And he's just like kind of like just taking that all in. But then that's when we find out. Yeah, this car doesn't really run on gasoline. It runs like it runs on plutonium, which is sort of retcon in part three. Yeah, I mean, I
1: guess they never really thought that they would have to explain themselves in that regard. That, yeah, the the car itself runs on gasoline, but the time circuits run on plutonium. I guess they just, at this point, they never envisioned anything past this. They never envisioned a, a franchise, a trilogy. So sometimes you just don't think about having to explain yourself down the line. But that is one of the things that, yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, Doc, saying that, you know, it runs on plutonium and I need something with a little more kick. Not exactly entirely accurate, but it's great for his little monologue here. And it's great. It's a great introduction to him and this whole idea of what he has done here with this car.
0: Yeah. And so. How he got the plutonium is that he agreed to help some Libyan terrorists to make him a bomb, but he stole the plutonium and gave him a, a shoddy bomb casing filled with used pinball machine parts. And he looks
1: so pleased with it. He's so gleeful he... with it. See, that's that's a, that's a thing that I could also see Kramer doing that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Marty, don't worry. I gave him a, 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 a bomb casing with used pin- pinball machine parts. <laughs>
1: See that so that's one of the, one of the things where I'd also like to see the backstory of that. <laughs> I'd also <laughs> like to see just all of that Doc and the Libyans and because it's it's a little bit weird. You never think of it because you spend so much time with nineteen fifty five Doc, nineteen eighty five Doc, especially in this scene here. He seems just a little bit more erratic, almost a little bit more dangerous. At the by the end of the movie, you just want to go give Doc a hug because you're just so happy that he's alive and you spent all this time with him in the 50s, you know, but in the beginning, this is almost a different character. And that's one of the things I love about this movie is that it makes sense. Because, yeah, time has changed. Doc is a different person. He went through those 30 years a different person because he met Marty in the 50s. So, yeah, it has changed him, and he's a different Doc. And the little bit more cartoony, kind of family-friendly Doc that we get throughout the rest of the trilogy is a result of him having met Marty a lot earlier in his life. So just an interesting thing to note here, just in terms of Doc's character from this
0: scene totally. I mean, he's bra- he's he doesn't leave his house without carrying a gun on him. I mean, it, it's a dark scenario. Like, how does he meet the Libyan terrorists? Like, how does how does one make a, a kind of introduction like that? It just boggles the mind. Um, speaking of, when they put a new uh, plutonium chamber into the car itself, that's when the Libyans show up and seek vengeance against Doc Brown. And... Of course, no more than two weeks ago, I'm going for a walk one, uh, like Saturday afternoon listening listen to a podcast, and a hippie van passes me, and I had to, with all my might, not yell out at the passing driver, <laughs> like, who do you think, the Libyans?
1: <laughs> yeah, anytime you see one of those Volkswagen vans, I remember uh, being in the car as a kid, and we passed one of those, and my dad goes, it's the Libyans, it's, it's, another iconic vehicle from this trilogy it, it's that card it just you instantly think of the Libyans and you know whether or not the idea of, of Doc having dealt with Libyan terrorists and and all of that whether or not that's uh something that would have held up today in terms of if this movie had been made today uh interesting to think about but it, it, it's unsettling we're in this kind of fun teen high school movie and then it becomes a sci-fi movie and then all of a sudden a character is being just gunned down in a mall parking lot it takes a turn it 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 really does it almost kind of hinges on like like a, a like a thriller like a crime thriller at this point so it's just another example of so many different the melding of so many different elements and genres into one movie that somehow can appeal to everyone.
0: Yeah, and like it's like you said, it's really jarring that we see Doc get gunned down, um, and now that Marty's a witness, they're going to try and kill him. Luckily, when they try to, he's the terrorist who's doing the firing has run out of ammo, or the gun's jammed, and so Marty ducks into the DeLorean, which people argue that might be Eric Stoltz doing that jump. We don't know. It's like one or two shots that might be Eric Stoltz still in the final uh, picture. Yeah, there's definitely
1: a fist that punches Biff at one point. That is Eric Stoltz. I don't think that it's Eric Stoltz diving into the DeLorean because you can see the Nikes. You can see the the Nikes that he was not wearing. Eric Stoltz was wearing Converse, his character. Completely different wardrobe for, for Marty for when Michael J. Fox came on board, which is another stroke of genius because Eric Stoltz's outfit isn't very recognizable, and if someone dressed up like that version of Marty, you wouldn't really instantly know it's Marty, but as soon as you see the red down vest, you know it's Marty. So another stroke of genius in the changeover, having that kind of do-over to go back and make this movie again, that's another one of the things that the movie's better off for.
0: Most definitely, and so then we get this little car chase around the parking lot here, and one of the mandates that Zemeckis hat for Alan Silvestri is like I don't have a lot of big vistas so I'm going to lean heavily on you I need the, this movie to sound big and Alan Silvestri delivers
1: oh yeah from from the minute the pedal goes to the metal it is just you are transported into an action adventure movie that you didn't anticipate and just the moments the brief moments that we get of Marty's kind of motif, Marty's, uh, hero theme, the moments that we get here that really you get more of during the skateboard chase. And then of course, during the clock tower scene, this is the first moment where we're exposed to that. So this whole chase scene here just kind of escalates the movie to a whole other level in terms of pacing, in terms of the stakes and in terms of the score. And again, I wish I could just experience it for the first time again, because it really just comes out of nowhere.
0: It's most certainly does. And like, just, it is just funny to think like, now that we know how shoddily made the DeLorean is like how they was able to make that into a second and third gear is a miracle (laughs) unto itself um and so in order to get away from the Libyans, like because the Libyans like one of them like just says screw it, and grabs his RPG that he has because he does. Um and decides says, like, I hope you see if you bastards can do ninety and puts it into another gear and starts to pull away. And I wonder, do you think Marty's thinking about um wait shit the time circuits are on or what in that moment before he actually goes back in time
1: well marty being marty he probably still hasn't processed any of what doc said yet so in that moment i gotta think that marty is just preoccupied with the fact that he's about to die at the hands of libyan terrorists with machine guns and bazookas so i don't think he had any idea of what he was doing. I mean, it's, it's He's still, he is still confused when he's walking into the town square in 1955. So I don't think that, I think it may be giving Marty a little too much credit that he uh, had the intention of accelerating up to 88 miles per hour. And, you know, with the time circuits on and, and using the car to escape by that means, I think he was just thinking about getting the hell out of that parking lot. But one of the most important things about, Michael J. Fox in this role is his ability to add comedy to a very tense action scene like this, where Eric Stultz, there, there's no way he would have been, even just with the simple like, huh, when Marty saw the, them pull out the bazooka, like, that's a moment that you don't get with Eric Stoltz that you do get, you do get that laugh there and that levity, even during the tense action, you get that with Michael J. Fox, because he's just so naturally funny.
0: Yeah, and, like, just, like, that double take when he looks in the mirror and he realizes, oh, they're going to shoot a bazooka at me. <laughs> and, like, the holy shit. Um, and the, the the gag of, like, he goes back in time, hits a scarecrow. He starts screaming. That flies up, Oh, shit, there's a barn. And he starts screaming again. His, his uh, radiation mask falls down. He goes crashing into the barn, causing the Peabody family to... Wake up and go see what the heck is making all the ruckus outside. And they believe there's going to be a UFO from outer space. And their entire
1: house lights up within the span of, like, two and a half seconds. It's Like, like the Waltons! It's, yeah, it's they, they did not waste any time getting up and out of bed and dressed and the lantern. That is... It, I believe in the commentary. Bob Gale's like, yeah, that's that's the quickest like waking up to getting downstairs and outside that's ever happened. But it kind of had <laughs> it, it had to be that way. But it's 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 funny in it in that sense. And yeah, it kind it's kind of the Waltons thing, and it, it's just kind of quaint and funny. And then yeah, we have the great joke with the gullwing doors of the Delorean looking like like the 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 spaceship on the cover of the comic book. It's just again, so many of these little great ideas and jokes that all seamlessly come together and work within the theme of the movie. And it's uh, a, it's just a a real funny scene and it's just a great joke. And then you even get a cow and, and as Bob Gale says in the commentary, anytime you can get a cow in there, it's just, it's just good for a laugh.
0: Oh yeah. Cows will just make anybody laugh. Um, and so and and and
1: then and then neil canton explains
0: what cows are and and what they do and how they work (laughs) neil canton came up on another podcast like and i'm just like oh my god another day i'm going for my walk it's early in the morning i almost like audibly said out like oh my god (laughs) this man but it was like wee hours in the morning and i would have just looked very weird it's like like who's guy just talking to the thin air outside um (laughs) So, it is curious. Like, and, like and Spaceman from Pluto was one of the titles that Sid Sheinberg recommended. The title should have been changed to at this point. Very adamant about it. And Spielberg was kind of like, um, I don't know how to deal with this. So, he wrote, he writes, like, a note back to him. Was like, like, uh, thanks for the joke, Sid. It really helped to kickstart the day. And, uh, uh, keep them coming. And Sid never pushed it afterwards. Um... <laughs> And like you were saying before about the levity and maybe the comedy that he was able to bring, when Marty goes out to speak to the Peabody family he says to apologize for the mess he's made, he's like, ah, uh, excuse me, sorry about your door. And then the shotgun goes off next to him. And then just the going stiff and then tripping back as he backs into the barn. <laughs> I die laughing every single time.
1: Yeah, it's just that Michael J. Fox – physical comedy that he just just does really well and he he does it later with the, the putting on the pants and you see that replicated so many times. Like we were uh the other night watching uh episode one of Stranger Things Three and Jonathan putting on his pants, he does the Marty Fall and <laughs> it's just a hallmark Michael J. Fox moment and it's again you do you don't have that in the universe where Eric Stoltz is Marty. And part of this part of why it, it's this movie works so well is because yeah, we're we get to laugh along the way and we get to have fun and we're just as bewildered as Marty, but he's you know, he still makes it fun and funny for us and sometimes uh you know sometimes he's in on the joke and sometimes it's just Michael J. Fox's natural uh natural ability to just do those things. But the sheer brilliance of him just bursting out of that barn and running over the pine tree (laughs) so that we get to, we get that little Easter egg of, you know, what has then changed in, in the future of that time period of that timeline. Just a brilliant, brilliant scene that I feel like in any other movie a scene like this maybe they would have cut it or they would have cut it out or they would have found a way to, to ride around it because it nothing really happens he's just kind of there but it's all worth it for the joke that you get and for then the the thing that pays off later
0: with the lone pine mall right and like i uh, there's part of me that i can't wait for the day that i have to defend myself against a monster. And so I can bellow out like, "Take that, you mutated son of a bitch!" <laughs> um, knowing how twenty twenty is going, I may have I may say that sooner rather than later. Um, yeah, yeah, I know. And and so yeah, it just the, the the how the score comes screeching back into the movie, just like how the DeLorean tears ass around this farm. Um, I guess it's like how older people look at everything, like those kids that look like maybe 10 and they're the parents look like they're in their fifties. They just look like, like those kids are not going to like, I don't know how long those parents are going to last. Like it's just a huge age gap there. Yeah. Uh, I really
1: want to know what the Peabody kids are like in the eighties. I really want to know what they're like, how they grew up and adjusted. They're just these weird kids <laughs> on the outskirts of this California town on this farm with these pine trees and, man a real weird
0: dad who uh, (laughs) thinks they're gonna breed them (laughs) yeah
1: and then there's there's a joke um uh i forget what this was supposed to be but there was supposed to be included i don't know if it was uh at some point in this in this movie or in or in one of the sequels where there's a joke about old man peabody having been committed because um Or is that is that on one of the newspapers when we see a newspaper in part two? Is that one of the jokes on the newspaper? I forget, but something about him having been uh, committed because he talks about a UFO landing in his barn and running over his pine tree. So that's just kind of an insight into, I guess, where the Peabody family, uh, the turn that their life suddenly takes because of this mysterious man. Uh, in this uh in this suit and this and this spaceship on wheels
0: yeah it is something to ponder for sure and Marty comes to the outskirts of the development of where his his house will eventually be and it's just it's just random farmland and so marty the car pretty much dies on him anyway, so he ditches the car outside the um the development walks to Hill Valley and takes in 1955 Hill Valley and everything is kind of, it is idealized version of the 1950s where everything's uh, spick and span and everything is just, I is perfect. And it's so alien to him because he's used to what, how his life is in 1985 I mean, the clock tower works like uh, Ronald Reagan's in the is the in the at the movies and everything. Yeah. David Crockett is the the biggest thing on TV at that point, point.
1: and everything just looks really nice. It's just beautiful to look at. This is one of my favorite scenes, just because we get to take in the town square, and I just love that town square. It's just beautiful when it's dressed up like the '50s here and. It's just the set design is is just so, so beautiful and so detailed and and accurate, very accurate to the time period in terms of the cars that they had on the streets and just everything that you, everywhere you look, if you just pause the frame, there there are these great details that you maybe didn't catch before. Um, And it's just a really nice looking kind of town. And it's the complete opposite of where we were before with uh, the way the 80s looked.
0: Yeah, it it is something... I mean, like, the one thing I've always, like, pondered at, like, was spring shoes ever really a thing? Like, that one kid was literally hopping down the street with his parents, and I'm like, um... I don't know if that's actually, like... (laughs) Like, it it probably was a thing. I don't know how successful that thing was. I never thought
1: about the spring shoes. But... I guess that's probably just one of those stupid little things you don't hear about because who would want that?
0: No, because like you're, cause your calves and your thighs would just hurt because you're just constantly using more muscles than you necessarily do to walk.
1: Yeah, that that would be like a good uh, good like quad workout there. <laughs> yeah, like really he... engaging those quads.
0: <laughs> but I also enjoy the moment when Marty goes past a cop and the cop like gives him a double take. Cause he's like, who's this beatneck just walking past um, in the town looking strange. And so Marty goes into, uh, Lou's diner just to find out where, uh, doc is. Luckily he's alive and in the phone book, uh, finds out where he lives. But before he can really relax everything, he runs into young Biff and the young version of his father. And it's the same thing that's been happening for 30 years, just in the past now that he's being bullied by Biff. And of course, Biff has power right now. He's backed by the Phantom himself. Uh, Billy <laughs> Zayn has matches.
1: <laughs> yeah, great posse for Biff. Great crew. It's just, he comes in like a bad out of hell, and he has his little shithead friends with him, and you suddenly, everything clicks, and you realize, oh, shit. This is, yeah. This is where the movie in those first screenings and in those, those first viewings in 1985, this is where the movie finally started to click for people. And this is where the bobs really felt so happy that it was working because yeah, the, the on screen chemistry between Michael and Crispin, and then you just have all these great side characters, Luke Carruthers and Goldie Wilson, and just building out the universe, building out the universe, the world of the fifties and, it's it's just an iconic scene I mean I don't even know I don't even know what else to say you have the jokes about tab and and Pepsi free and uh by the way tab i I have had tab uh it when I was uh in like middle school high school you were still able to buy tab I don't know if you can buy tab it's just now. been recently
0: discontinued
1: okay well that's i mean long overdue tab is not very good. But, but I used to drink it simply because Marty McFly mentioned it. So that was the kind of power that this movie had over me back in the day. Tab?
0: I can't give you a tab unless you order something.
1: <laughs> Just great jokes that Maybe now people don't really know what Pepsi Free is. You know, if some kid is just watching this for the first time today, then they maybe not won't get the joke completely because Pepsi Free obviously does not exist. But that's also part of what makes this so authentic to the 80s is that, yeah, Pepsi Free was a thing in the 80s. So it's it's a little Easter egg artifact of the 80s that doesn't ring true today, but makes it all the more authentic for having been uh, a, a quintessential 80s film.
0: Right, I mean, like, if we want to make a joke like that, that's like, if we want to make a Pepsi One joke.
1: Yeah, I, oh
0: yeah, there are so many, di- Pepsi gives you a lot of options,
1: because you in, like, the early 2000s, you could do Pepsi Blue. Uh, In the, 90, oh my God. In the 90s, you could have done Crystal Pepsi. So, <laughs> Pepsi really does, I feel like they're aware of it, and they're in on the joke. So, if you're making a period film, and you really want to, like, throw in a cool little Easter egg, chances are there is a, a weird offshoot of Pepsi that you can include and get a nice little laugh out of it for everyone who remembers.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, at least Coca-Cola's only had new Coke, and they've never done that again. Unlike Pepsi, who's continued to try to find success in other things, but Coca-Cola's never needed to change anything. This is just an ongoing battle between myself and Brent Clark, because... He's a Pepsi person, and when, whenever I do drink soda, which is not that often, I do drink Coke, and I'm just showing my dominance now. Anyway, um... <laughs> See, I, <laughs> I just, I need to hear the debate, though. I need. <laughs> oh, God, like it, like, it was whatever we get on before we talk about Marvel or something like that, because we are, in the future, we're recording our review of Infinity War very soon. Nice. Um... And so, like, the first 25 minutes before we actually start recording is just us uh, making fun of each other that way. C- cans uh, cans without borders. What? Cans without borders. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's remarkable. And so, uh, there's a moment here that I always really enjoyed when George is trying to explain himself, and, like, Biff is just nodding his head, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just looks back at Marty. He gives him this look like, could you believe this, this shit he's trying to pull right now? And that's when he says, hello, anybody home? Uh, It's a nice little detail. I mean, Goldie Wilson just like, like, I can't say the word mayor without (laughs) thinking, mayor.
1: That's a good idea. I'll run for mayor. Talk about a guy who gets a couple lines and just puts his stamp on those lines and being able to be that memorable just based off of such a small part. It's incredible. That's just... Don Fullalove, he's a gem. Uh, Interesting note, I don't know if you know this. Don Fullalove, of of course I know this. Uh, Don Fullalove, when he was a kid, played Michael Jackson in the Jackson 5 cartoon. Huh. He was the voice of young Michael Jackson in the Jackson 5 cartoon. Did not know that. Yeah, I don't know if you knew that there was a Jackson 5 cartoon, but there indeed was. And Don Full of Love played the boys of Michael Jackson. So that's one of those cool uh, uh, Michael Jackson um, uh, references or, or connections with Back to the Future. Of course, we have, you know, in, in part two and then Marty does the moonwalk and, you know, we have Beat It and then all the posters and, you know, the girls room that you once said, oh, that's that's your room. Uh, <laughs> when I had all the posters up. Uh, <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, so a little interesting tidbit.
0: Um, so George leaves, uh, on his bicycle, Marty gives chase, um, trying to find where his father is in the neighborhood looks, and I think it's the same neighborhood of South Pasadena where, uh, frequent crow host uh, Mike Wilson and I pray in the direction of because of Halloween. And we find out that George is a peeping Tom. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and uh I always now think of this, uh think of Chris from Hey Do You Remember <laughs> saying not understanding what he's a peeping Tom meant and then <laughs> just saying that about some random dude to his dad and then his dad being very confused. I always think of that now oh, uh, whenever I watch this scene. This neighborhood was also the neighborhood from Teen Wolf. So Michael J. Fox shooting Teen Wolf seeing this Steven Spielberg production back to the future and, and just being like, Oh, I want to be a part of a movie like that. Little did he know not too long after he would be a part of a movie like that. So that's just real interesting. This neighborhood, it pops up in, in a lot of different movies and it's always, uh, it's always cool to say, Oh yeah, that's, that's Lorraine's house. That's George's house. Very distinct looking, uh, very distinct looking house. And that's a very distinctive tree that he is indeed peeping on.
0: And, However, George loses his grip and falls into the middle of the road. And the, the decision that changes the entire uh, space-time continuum, Marty runs into the road to push his father out of the way, causing to get hit by his grandfather, pretty much. And I've seen many action movies and many horror movies where people get injured all the time. But seeing Michael J. Fox's head just bounce off the uh, road... Still hurts.
1: Yeah, that is painful sound design right there. Oh.
0: And like you like I feel like you would just be seeing stars after that. It makes sense why he knocks himself silly. Yeah, that dude has
1: CTE in his future after that one. Yeah.
0: And then his grandfather gets out and says, Stella, another one of these damn kids jumped in front of my car. Which just raises another one <laughs> just raises so many questions. How many kids is he hitting in his car with his car?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a great introduction to a man like Sam Baines because this man is just he's a tour de force in his own right. I've 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 never seen a character that's just so stern and so angry for seemingly no reason. Uh, Maybe it's because all these kids just jump in front of his car all the time. Maybe he's just having this recurring problem and it's really pissing him off. But I just I love the character of Sam Baines. I think he's so funny. He has my favorite quote in the entire movie, which we're coming up to. But yeah, a a a a moment that I always just have to cringe and just like it. You know, it it just kind of that that head hitting that pavement because you can feel it. That's what you can feel what that feels like. That is really good sound design.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is really, really uncomfortable. And the actor, George uh, Dicenzo, who plays Sam Baines, obviously he had actually worked with Steven Spielberg before this. He actually had a, a small role, almost like a cameo, in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And is it's very different from his Sam Baines character because he's very soft-spoken and very polite. And so it's just, is a radical departure what we see here as Sam Baines and that's when we introduced to Leah Thompson playing the 17 year old version of herself who is already smitten with Calvin Klein aka Marty McFly
1: the quintessential boy crazy character she's got all the pictures of all the the teen idols on her wall around her mirror which is a great character touch her room is just it again it's just another one where the set design is so great it's just fun to look around and see all these kind of relics and just uh, the wallpaper and it's all very just it adds a lot to the character this very sweet and kind of unassuming but then you you realize that maybe she's not so innocent and yeah she you you later do find out that yeah she is not she is not innocent she is just this kind of ball of energy and she's got her eyes set On Calvin Klein and she's just kind of not uh, letting him out of this this death grip that she has on him and it is it is kind of uncomfortable you know it's that's that's his mother you know that's her son but it's played so innocently and it's it's the nuance is there that makes it work and makes it not Icky and makes it not disgusting or salacious or any of these things that these clickbait articles will have you, uh, you know, believing that it is. Because when you paint with such a broad brush, that oh yeah, there's there's this movie has incest, it has rape, it has terrorists, it has this, has that. Sure, but the nuance is there when you watch the movie, and that's the important detail that sometimes gets left out when you're when you're talking about this.
0: Right, because I don't think this movie has a mean bone in its body. It's not malicious in any of its t- intents. And it is sweet in here. And, like, I think it's because... I think the reason why Lorraine doesn't come off creepy is because Marty is so repelled by it. Yeah. If there's yeah, a he- fraction of a second he thought, like, he would contemplate the idea, then that's when it becomes creepy. And that's
1: the kind of comedy that I'm so glad that this movie does not have, because that takes it a step more into the kind of raunchy and a little bit more lowbrow kind of comedy that, yeah, that's not going to appeal to everyone. That's not what makes this movie what it is. And it doesn't have the heart that this movie has.
0: No, it would just turn it into a source engine on Pornhub. <laughs> God. Yes. N- not that I would know from my experience or anything like that. I just heard these educational documentaries are out there.
1: Oh yeah, uh, yeah. yeah <laughs> that's no, that's no. Totally, totally
0: makes sense. Uh, of course. And uh, and so they sit down to uh, their TV dinner, literally, because look out, look how the TV rolls.
1: <laughs> oh, now we can watch Jackie Gleason while we eat.
0: And that just it was a, that's a huge step forward in the American household because you have this Norman, you have this Rockwell-esque family here introducing a piece of technology like the television set is a game changer and even though Lorraine's mother is just really concerned about Marty says like hey can I call your mother to see if there's anybody to pick you up and make sure you get home safely it's like well she's not really home and then uh, I love this one moment here when Lorraine's mother's like oh okay and She goes back to her food she just flicks her eyebrows Like alright like, mm-hmm, right, fine I'll just keep my studio comments myself then <laughs> um, But then I guess your favorite line Is coming up right here
1: Oh well my favorite line Comes up after Marty leaves but Sam Baines has quite a few of my favorite quotes I love the who the hell is John F. Kennedy Yes um, But my, my favorite being uh, He's an idiot Comes from upbringing His Parents are probably idiots too I just it's just it's just it's just so perfect it just works on so many levels it it, Sam Baines first of all just just this guy he's sick and tired of these kids jumping in front of his car but nothing makes the man happier than being able to watch Jackie Gleason but as soon as you know he has to deal with anything else he's just oh he's an idiot he's this he's that you know he's yelling at Lorraine he's Of Just a very stern man and just some of the facial expressions on this guy's face. Such a well acted uh, uh, role here with such great, great uh, one liners and a very limited role. But another character who just gets the most out of limited dialogue and just kind of takes every every. Second of his screen time, he is doing something. He's contorting his face, the way he's eating the roll, the way he's rolling his eyes or shaking his head. I just think that this guy did a hell of a job portraying a, a character that could have been easily forgettable. Because um, there are some forgettable characters sitting around that table. I've never really given a second thought to any of Lorraine's siblings other than. Uh, the brother from the Wonder Years, Jason Hervey, with with his coonskin cap. I've never given a second thought to any of those kids. I don't even know if I have ever looked at some of those kids while they're in the shot. Because I'm focusing on the more interesting people. But Sam Baines, by far one of my favorite characters. Just for his kind of, like, this energy that he brings. it. He doesn't have time for
0: anything but Jackie Gleason. I mean, it's kind of hard to make time for anything else but Jackie Gleason. If it's on! Um, especially if they get the you get the uh, re- reruns of uh, Honeymooners. But what's a rerun? You'll find out one day. <laughs> um, so Marty takes the uh, directions and manages to f- make his way to Doc's house that's not burnt down at this time. And finally meets Doc Brown for the first time. However, he has to convince him that he's not a kid playing a prank on him. That he's actually from the future And he came here in his time machine. Just
1: the way Doc answers the door. If you could have uh, a, a fitting follow up to the way that Doc enters the movie in the 80s. This is it with the with his mind reading experiment on his head and just his energy in this scene. 1950s Doc and 1980s Doc very much the same in that they're they're still you know just erratic and all over the place and he's got these ideas and he's doing this he's doing that but this doc in particular is so changed by his friendship with marty that by the time marty is ready to go back to 1955 this doc is also is is almost unrecognizable from the doc that we do wind up getting that's one of my favorite things is that Christopher Lloyd has only portrayed Doc. He doesn't portray other versions of himself quite in the way that Tom Wilson or Leah Thompson had to. He's only ever portrayed Doc Brown. But he's portrayed this one character in so many different ways just because of how this character changes by his interactions with Marty.
0: Right, and it seems like... Like obviously he had some success with some inventions, but it feels like the time machine was the first thing that really worked.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's he's he says he's, he's finally invented something that works when Marty goes and and brings him to the DeLorean, and that moment of, I guess, knowing that he will eventually succeed is the thing that changes Doc going forward. It takes a little bit of the drama and the desperation out of him and it's 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 really interesting that that moment right there it's like oh yeah if marty suddenly got a glimpse of you know uh, a platinum record that he made in the future i think it would take a lot of the desperation out of and a lot of the angst and a a lot of the the self-rejection out of marty so doc being able to have that moment i think is is probably one of the most important things that happens to him because then he realizes okay I know that I'm going to succeed at this now I just need to focus on actually doing it
0: right I think that's why he's far calmer when we see him again when we return back to 1985 Um, and so of course the famous famous line here when Doc quizzes Marty asking who's the president of the United States in 1985 and since it's just Plain as the nose in your face. He's like Ronald Reagan, which Doc scoffs at, like and acts becoming a president. And he he retorts, he's like, who's the vice president? Jerry Lewis. Uh, which I just imagine like how funny if Jerry Lewis was the vice president, like how, <laughs> like behind like the Iron Man contra. Anyway, um, but eventually Marty convinces uh that he's on the level. And shows him to the time machine, like you said. He finally he's like, "I it works." I finally invented something that works. So they get the DeLorean back to Doc's house. We review the footage of the experiment that happened, where we find that the the reason it's able to work, the, how what powers the time machine itself is one point twenty one uh, gigawatts. Even though it's actually pronounced gigawatts of electricity. A great mistake that makes this movie,
1: again, makes this movie more quotable. Because 1.21 gigawatts is a lot funnier to say than gigawatts. And it was an honest mistake on their part. They didn't know that they were pronouncing it wrong, that it was gigawatts. But it's another one of these signature things from the movie. So if you say gigawatt, that is now a term that exists in the Back to the Future universe, like flux capacitor, it's what a, it's part of the vocabulary of this universe and it's completely unique to the movie. So a happy little accident there.
0: Yeah, there's just a, a mispronunciation by a scientist they spoke to. Um, however, Doc is just startled by the idea of like, how could you build something that runs on such a, a credible power? Uh, so Marty has to, to convince him like, hey, I need to go back in time. I have a life. I have a girl. And Doc is resolute like I don't know how I can get you back the only thing that is strong enough to power that is a bolt of lightning and we'll never know when something like that's gonna ever strike
1: and this is another situation where the fact that they had to come up with a little bit more creative solutions for their problems. When doing the reshoots with Michael J. Fox because of budgetary concerns, they couldn't afford to do the whole nuclear test site sequence. And the movie is so much better for that. Imagine if we didn't have the the clock tower scene. Imagine if the clock tower didn't play into the entire uh, uh, central crux of the movie into the climax Where Marty gets sent back. Imagine if we didn't have that. Imagine if this bolt of lightning, imagine if this bolt of lightning on this specific date was not important to this movie. It makes it a lesser film. So, this is another situation where I am so glad that they had the ability to go back and do that. And another situation where their limitations in terms of budget forced them to be more creative, which is so important because if they had all the budget in the world to go do that nuclear test site sequence we'd be looking at a very different movie that did not play into the importance of the town square and the clock tower as its own character and it would have been a lesser movie for it
0: yeah part of me is very curious to see what that would be like seeing the DeLorean race onto a nuclear test site And drive into a nuclear explosion. But I don't think it would have had the romanticism of the clock tower.
1: Exactly. And it it probably takes a lot of the drama out of it too. Because the whole situation that they're in where they have to... Marty has to accelerate at exactly the right speed. At exactly the right time. And hit that hook at exactly the right moment when that lightning strikes you gotta time that perfectly the nuclear test site sequence probably wouldn't have quite the same stakes because they only get one shot doing it this way they only get one shot if Marty misses that very small window of opportunity then he's stuck
0: yeah and in the other version he's irradiated yeah
1: (laughs) Well, well, yeah, that that does add that other level of drama, but I don't think that's quite as fun.
0: No, like have him turn to a skeleton like he's Sarah Connor in the Terminator? No, I don't think that would have been as um, pleasant for our viewers around the world. Um, but now they've had the setup like, hey, the clock tower is going to be struck by lightning in a week. And so Marty's like, okay. I can stay here for a week if we could find a way to channel the electricity into the car. Um, But Doc says, like, hey, no, you can't go around bombing around here. You can change the butterfly effect, pretty much. Like, you can say hello to somebody and change the course of the entire world. And Marty's like, sure, yeah, that's totally fine. Doc says, like, have you interacted with anybody besides me today? Which Marty finally confesses he ran to his parents and inadvertently met uh messed up with their uh meeting that was supposed to have
1: that's another missed opportunity i feel for a part two would be exploring those little things that marty simply being in the 50s eventually would go on to change in his present day i would have loved to have seen marty exploring this new timeline where because he interacted with this person or because he was here and he was in this person's way and they didn't get to this place in time so then they didn't see this person they didn't have this conversation and then all the chain of events that butterfly effect that it leads to i would have loved to explore that a little bit more in in a sequel and that's also an interesting idea for if there ever was some sort of continuation of this world be it you know a movie or in you know in a, a television series format you know a netflix series type of thing which i'm all for if they ever decide to do that because uh, i think it's a real creative way to to explore the universe without necessarily doing a part four that's an aspect of this movie that i would have loved to explore beyond the lone pine mall and beyond his family being successful and all the the character changes that come along with that just the little things you know the little things that you, you can never really know for sure how much or how little it's going to change, but it would have been fun to explore
0: most definitely. But that's when they realize the slow effect of the picture of him and his siblings are starting to slowly fade out. They're being erased from existence. So now they don't have to just get the time machine ready for the clock tower in a week. They have to somehow get their par- his parents to fall back in love. And now he's tasked to go to the school and get Lorraine to fall in love with George. However, Lorraine is smitten with Marty instead.
1: Yeah, and it's it's a situation where he has to do something that he probably doesn't even know how it happened in the first place. Because, as we said, these characters are not in love. So from his point of view... How on earth is he supposed to get his parents together? He doesn't, probably doesn't even know how they got together, what his mother would have seen in his father, how that all would have happened, how that they would have gotten married and had three kids. So, the problem that Marty faces here, it probably seems like he's just, like he's just doomed to stay in the fifties forever because his mother's fallen for him, and he has a complete wimp for a father, and he has no idea how this is he says jesus george it's a wonder i was even born he probably is just thinking that this entire time
0: yeah i i mean like when when dog asks like what are the what are their common interests and marty's like nothing nothing it's a real sad, sad state of affairs there but Doc is always thinking on his feet here it's like there's a rhythmic uh, uh, ceremony showing up or coming up I how does he phrase it how does he say dance there's a rhythmic ceremonial ritual coming there up there we go <laughs> and so they said like, oh that's where they're supposed to fall in love that's where they're supposed to kiss So the first step like alright you stick to your father like Lou and make sure he gets to there to the dance and so Bardia continues to get George um, into the, I guess, the periphery of Lorraine. It's like, hey, just be confident to go over there and talk to her. And like so many people in high school, like so many people in just life, have trouble engaging in a conversation with somebody. And this is when we get the first hints that George wants to be a science fiction author, which is something that Marty never knew that about his father. He never knew he had any kind of creative bone in his body because... George is timid to tell anybody because he's afraid of people not liking what he would want to create.
1: Yeah. And this is where Bob Gale's original idea of would I be friends with my father? Would I be friends with my parents? What were they like in high school? It's where it gets really interesting because yeah, he discovers something new that he never knew about his father. He didn't, Oh, I didn't know you did anything creative, which uh, then right there it, you can, feel Marty just have this kind of newfound respect and connection to his father. Cause he's, Oh, okay. So we're kind of, my father wanted to be a writer. I want to be in a band. I want to make music, you know, these creative outlets, understanding his father a little more, which when people say Marty doesn't have an arc there, there's a whole list of things that you can, you can point to, you know, his relationship with doc, his relationship with his parents, his, his belief in himself at the end. And, you know, where, to the point where he is, you know, he, he's, going to mail out his cassette to the record company and i feel like right here in this moment where he's talking to george is is where he kind of starts to plant the seed in his own mind of hmm maybe i should start to believe in myself or else i'll wind up like my dad did and it's 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 a little it, you know it's a little sad that uh that it has to be that way in the original timeline but of, of course you know the changes that take place But then there's the whole social aspect and the fact that his father's a complete outcast. He's the loser. He's sitting by himself at lunch. He's disheveled. He's got all these notebooks all over. And again, you have Biff, you know, causing problems and Marty not being afraid to just go right up to him and grab him by the shirt. That's one of the things I love about the Marty character because he's got that kind of tenacity where he's, he'll just go right up to Biff and, and, you know he's ready to duke it out with him even though he knows he's going to get his ass kicked and that whereas george he runs he he's nowhere to be seen
0: yeah and uh, i love how marty goes up to confront biff and then immediately recognizes the fact like huh i did not think this through because biff <laughs> is a very big man um but he's still willing to throw down if necessary luckily he's saved by uh strickland uh, so why don't you make like a Lee? Uh, uh tree. Oh God, uh, fuck! Now I I I I, 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 I mean, I screwed it up. I screwed up his screw up of the saying. <laughs> make, make like a Lee and Carlson. Uh, oh, him sheesh. Uh, oh man, it, 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 it's just make like a tree and just get out of here. And so George leaves, and so Marty chases him down again. Uh, he's like, I can't go to the dance because I'll be missing science fiction theater and not you or anyone else in this planet will ever get you to change my mind. So Marty gets the bright idea to dress up in his radiation radiation shoot, suit blah, 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 and decides to play a unreleased um, track by Eddie Van Halen uh, to Wake Up George.
1: First of all, I just have to say that I totally relate uh, to George's dilemma of not wanting to uh, do something social because he'll miss his favorite show. Uh, Very relatable. I'm one of those people who if if I'm asked to do something and and there's some sort of entertainment happening at the same time that I don't want to miss, I'll be like, hmm, do I really need to see this person? Do I really need to... You know, this, it, do, do I need to go to my dad's birthday party? Do I really? You know, <laughs> but but um, yeah, the brilliant way that Marty comes up uh with the idea to use the fact that he has this futuristic looking radiation suit, use the fact that he has music from the future that would sound incomprehensible to uh, a kid of the 50s, that Eddie Van Halen song. Uh, that you mentioned. It's a song called Out the Window. It was actually, is interesting, originally from the movie The Wildlife, which is a movie that Crispin and Leah Thompson, uh, were, or sorry, uh, Eric Stoltz and Leah Thompson were in together before Back to the Future. Uh, That is uh, an Eddie Van Halen track, not a Van Halen track, because, you know, contractual things, Van Halen could not appear in the film. Their music couldn't appear in the film. So that's why it says Edward Van Halen. But I, as as someone who used to walk around with a Walkman all the time as a kid with with those little the little crappy uh, earphones that that Marty's had with his Walkman, uh, I always love to just kind of yeah, hit that play button with that kind of with that kind of way that he does here as Darth Vader, and it's just a, it's just another funny generational joke that completely works just because of the advancement of technology and how music changes. It's weird how music changes so much in 30 years that if you played someone in the 50s music from the 80s, it sounds like an alien is trying to to melt their brain. Uh, And I'm sure if you played music from today for someone from the 80s, they would probably say
0: the same thing. For sure. And I guess it's just sad because of the recent passing of Eddie Van Halen. That like one of one of the groups I'm part of on Facebook is Back to the Future related, and so it was a lot of loving tributes to Eddie Van Halen in there. Just for this like little piece of music in here, did that just is just a a fraction of what he did for the music industry and just literally changed guitars forever. Um and i do i like how this movie at least this scene cuz this went on longer you can see the extended cut of this on the dvd and blu-ray i'm glad they cut it how it is for the movie yeah. itself
1: oh for sure it does go on a little bit too long uh with the extended dialogue and it gets a little bit cheesy again this movie is just it's cut so well that there's no fat on it so a situation where yeah they have some extended dialogue and it gets a little bit more into exposition and things like that crispin uh george he explains everything you need to know about that encounter in the very next scene so it, that's a very good cut
0: yeah so um george goes up to marty saying like darth Vader came down from the planet falcon and, and says if i didn't met uh uh go to the dance with lorraine he'd melt my brain uh, so let's keep this kind of brain-melting stuff to ourselves. And just go in there and tell her how you feel. And say whatever's coming to your mind. Nothing's coming to my mind. Jesus, George. It was, it was a miracle I was even born.
1: <laughs> and say, like... Again Again, relatable. George McFly, completely relatable here. Nothing comes to my
0: mind. <laughs> <laughs> they say, like, you're... You're her destiny. You were you're destined to be together. Girls like that kind of stuff. So George writes that down in his notepad and goes in there. And one of my favorite moments that my friend Larry and I quote all the time is like, Lou, give me a milk. Slap the counter. Chocolate. <laughs> Had that come sliding into frame. And he takes one sip, slams down the counter, spilling some of it on Lou, who gives him an incredulous look afterwards if you look closely. <laughs> Uh, which has a great outtake because Crispin actually knocked the glass to the floor, smashing it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I also love the gag right before that when they're still outside. This cute little father-son moment that just happens naturally, where Marty can't twist off the the bottle cap on on the Pepsi bottle, and George just grabs it from him and 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 opens it with the with the with the bottle opener. It's just this little father-son thing that is happening, and they. He doesn't even know that this kid is his son, but it's just kind of this thing where he just his naturally takes control and almost a fatherly instinct for this teenage kid. It's kind of weird, but I always enjoyed that.
0: I, I bet you that's like the first of many things that would happen in their relationship going forward, especially how George has changed and becomes a father later on in this timeline. Exactly. And, and it's weird to also see George
1: be the more competent of the two, although it's for like two seconds
0: Yeah, I think it's it's a nice little moment just to show that he's not completely incompetent in the world he inhabits. And so, George goes up to Lorraine and finally says, like, Lorraine, you're my density. I mean, my destiny. And there's just a, there's a twinkle in Lorraine's eye, like, hey, this is actually really cute, and this actually could work, and it, it does seem like to be actually happening. It does seem like George is able to yes and himself to asking her out. However, it's interrupted when Biff enters, and like, so much so the jukebox shuts off.
1: <laughs> you love that. Someone just comes in, and pulls the plug at exactly the right time. Yeah, I mean, like, even Fonzie's like, hey,
0: turn it off over there. <laughs> I would love to see the, the Back to the Future Happy Days crossover. <laughs> oh, man. And so. It looks like Biff's going to start some stuff. However, Marty trips Biff, and Biff gets up into his face, showing just how big he is in comparison. But Marty gets to drop on and says, "Hey, what's that?" And then Cole clocks uh, Biff, which is actually Eric Stoltz' fist. Exactly. Yeah. And then we, um Marty invents the skateboard. <laughs> yeah the
1: the first thing that he invents in this timeline
0: <laughs> yeah and it's it like be, it's obviously in ha- yeah, I guess hampered by his budget but Zemeckis doesn't let that stop him to, to create a car chase just in this little square here
1: it's very impressive because as it's happening you're not thinking about the fact that yeah they're just going around this little town square but it is very it feels so expansive and it feels so big and Again, attributed to the score, making that
0: small moment in this small town feel so much bigger. Definitely, and but it does make you question. Like one, uh, at one point, uh, Barty just checks uh, these paralegals into the boards as he yeah. goes into as they exit the courthouse, and B, Biff is ready to murder somebody in broad daylight.
1: Yeah, that. Yeah, (laughs) it's like, what is his plan here? What's going on? And why isn't anyone really trying to intervene? I mean, people are just going about their business in the background. They don't seem too bothered. And you also have to wonder, yeah, what case was completely blown because of all those papers flying all over and those people, you know, not not making it into court? Who is is now uh, uh, in prison uh, wrongfully? You know, what what injustice has occurred because of Marty? Another interesting, uh, uh, fun thing that could have been
0: explored at some point it was the incumbent uh, mayor red thomas's uh, tax returns <laughs> and, and that's how that's why he lost the election and became a homeless person in the 1980s <laughs> i see, all right see this is headcanon that i can <laughs> uh yeah and so which like there's a great it's, I, it's one of my favorite shots the entire movie where Marty's on the, put, he's holding himself against the hood of the car. He's gonna be pushed into the truck or manure, and it cuts to that profile shot that tracks to the side, parallel to the car as Marty gets up, runs over the hood, jumps over the car, and lands back on the, uh, skateboard that goes underneath the car. Resulting into one of my favorite reaction shots to uh, everybody reacting, SHIT! as they come crashing into the manure truck.
1: It's just the perfect hero moment because you get the. You get Marty's theme. This perfect hero moment. It in the scope of things that have happened in movies, it's probably one of the less impressive things. He he's skateboarding. He's, he's pinned against the car and then he, he runs over the car and jumps off the other end of the skateboard. It's cool, but the music makes it so much cooler. It makes it feel like this big grand stunt, this big grand achievement that he has just pulled off when, you know, it, it's, it's something that in the scope of movies and how far we've come, certainly since back to the future seems very small, but it's again, it's just enhanced by the, the wonderful Alan Silvestri score.
0: No doubt. And so, uh, Marty returns to doc's home where he notices doc is watching the tape from that night where he went back in time. And it seems that doc knows a little more than he's letting on. Uh, but they show a model of what the plan is for Saturday night where they do a recreation of a little model car going across this uh, recreation of the town square, hitting the wire at the exact moment at 10.04 p.m. when the lightning strikes. However, it results in the little model car bursting the flames and nearly setting the house on fire.
1: <laughs> and and uh, a, a great uh, gift worthy reaction from Doc.
0: Just a... <gasps> Uh, and, which is, I I think I felt that internally so many times in my life when something has <laughs> gone horribly awry. Yeah,
1: I also just love the saxophone in the background. You read my mind because that's exactly what was on my mind. I'm like, what does like? I guess that's what he does to unwind. <laughs> I now see now I want the version of the movie where Doc
0: joined Marty on stage with the Starlighters. Oh, jeez. Uh, like I like I gotta imagine like he's sucking a formula he just takes it off the rack and he starts noodle some notes until he comes to a realization like oh I can do this and he goes back to whatever science he was doing
1: <laughs> yeah he, he you know he's he's just kind of mulling around he picks it up he plays Baker Street and then he goes back to <laughs> goes back to his experiments
0: <laughs> he takes it off the rack and he's just like da 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 ga, 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 da 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 <laughs> Then he has sympathy for destruction. <laughs> he goes outside, plays basketball. <laughs> <laughs> for those who do not know, we are referencing vh uh, ones Behind the Music of uh, Megadeth and how a basketball hoop pretty much helped writing of the album. Uh... Oh, shit. I forgot the name of the album now. Count- Countdown to Extinction. Countdown to Extinction. Thank you.
1: I love that we've never discussed this, and yet we were both immediately on the same page <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh because because you and i have such an affinity for the metallica documentary some kind of monster uh so i think just in, in our overall music that we have a lot of the same taste so i think we we just go hand in hand and just pick up whatever whoever's putting down something yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man it's like it's some kind of monster some kind of monster that's a good Some name. kind of monster you know uh, hey Z- hey zach <laughs> see zach's blowing me off jason's blowing me off <laughs> how quickly we become yesterday's news <gasps> oh my god i recently came across the video of, of a snippet from that documentary of laura screaming like he fucking left the band man why are we the bad guys <laughs> we got to review that at some point <laughs> oh my god like i i'm i'm down for it by all means uh, That'll be a fun one. Oh shit! It will be a lot of fun. However, before they can go over more of the plan, Lorraine stalks Marty back to Doc browns
1: Yeah, yeah You gotta wonder how long she was waiting before she decided to knock.
0: I, I mean, like it's like her and Michael Myers; those are the two people in the bush just watching people go about their uh, day. <laughs> I don't know who I'm more afraid of. That's a very very valid question to ask. Um <laughs> uh, however she enters and says like she asks him out to the chairman under the sea dance, uh, which Marty reluctantly agrees, but comes up with a plan for him to take advantage of her. However, George is gonna come in like the White Knight and save her, and so they can go off and be happily ever after as icky as that is for Marty for that to be in that position.
1: Yeah. That's how much he wants to save his ass. He's willing to put himself in these uncomfortable positions for the benefit of George and by proxy, the benefit of his existence.
0: Yeah. And so, um, in order to convince him, like George is kind of resonance to this idea, uh, uh, resistance to that idea. I should say, where he's like, Oh, you're going to go over and touch her on touch her, her on as her. he's holding his mother's brassiere <laughs> while he's making this point. Uh, <laughs> I love that Marty's like no no no. <laughs> it's just an act okay you walk over there and you say you're lying George oh hey you get your damn hands off her you really think I ought to swear yes god it George swear <laughs> um, but I, of course there is the, the most important line in the scene here and it's kind of the crux of the movie like if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything.
1: Yep, and it's it's a case of Marty having heard this over and over again from uh from Doc, not really paying attention to it to the message there and him being the teacher in this in this case being the mentor, when you teach something, you you learn it even better yourself. So another turning point for Marty and it all comes full circle in in a couple of scenes but another another very interesting cause, and this is like the last scene before that night before the night of the dance so this is this movie just flies by i mean this 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 podcast is is certainly up there in uh, in length but this the movie when you're just watching it it just flies by it's like oh we're
0: already here at the night of the dance yeah i mean this is not a fly by night podcast, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> fly by night, away from
0: here. And like that commercial, I have been caught air drumming to that song while at a stoplight. It is very embarrassing. You 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 can't not air drum to Neil Peart. No, and like when he passed, like it was like it was, I was inconsolable for days after, it, and I just blasted Rush the entire time. Um, but then we get this kind of very sweet moment here, where Doc is like, "I can't wait for to talk to you for thirty. I uh, Can't wait. I have to. I can't believe I have to wait thirty years to talk about everything we've experienced this past week." But this is when Marty starts to get kind of second guessing. Like, should I warn Doc about the future? I don't want him to die in the future.
1: It's so hard on both characters ends because Doc just made this amazing friend who just changed his life by helping him realize that he will be successful. And now he has to wait 30 years to talk to his friend again. And Marty, on the other hand is like, I may never talk to my friend again because he's going to die. So just that's an emotional moment that kind of gets me now when I watch it as an adult, it kind of really just resonates. It's the sadness here that Marty's feeling when he's writing this letter, it it really just hits a little bit more.
0: Yeah. But it's a thought that I've had recently based upon this, the, this rewatch for this review does Doc introduce himself to Marty earlier on than he did in the first timeline because of the experience here in 1955?
1: Yeah, that's another thing where it's like, yeah, he has all this knowledge. He he knows he can pretty much fabricate a first meeting however he chooses. So is Doc a strict man of science in that he he just lets it play out as it normally would? Or does he do that? That's another thing. You know, be very interesting to see that that kind of tale play out uh, uh, either in film or, or in a, in a series somehow, I think there would be some, some kind of hook to that. And Doc's internal struggle for the 30 years in between uh, 55 and 85. And what does he do? He has a lot of decisions to make.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's such a strong hook. You can attach this to the back of time machine. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we have a deleted scene of, uh doc bribing the police uh oh, yeah
1: <laughs> yeah i've got it right here and he passes him a, a 50 or whatever yeah
0: and then marty's concerned if he's going to come back gay because he's hitting on his mom yeah i'm glad that joke was cut yeah but i i think i i think what's what's what could have that scene here because doc doesn't think of it as as homosexuality he's like why wouldn't you be happy like he takes it on, <laughs> and, like the initial term of it, and Marty's yeah. just like, never mind."
1: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 again, it's a cute joke playing on the innocence of the '50s and the kind of generational gap in understanding. But yeah, a good cut, uh, definitely a good cut of a throwaway joke.
0: Yeah, and spe- speaking of cuts, we cut to the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, and everybody's having a good time, and Marty and Lorraine pull up, and they're about to park. Uh, George is enjoying the fruit punch. And if we know anything from part two, I think we know why he gets the courage later on in the movie. (laughs) Yep. A little bit of the old liquid courage. Exactly. And so Marty is trying his damnedest to go through with this, but it's so uncomfortable. It's so weird for him. And because Lorraine is coming on pretty hard in this scene. And, does make a move on Marty and Marty is just like, oh my God, and Lorraine pulls back realizing it's wrong, but what sells this joke is the reaction shot of Marty just still leaning up against the door. Can't believe he just kissed his mother like that and he looks shell shocked right there.
1: Yeah, the trauma that Marty must have coming off of this interaction, not only does he find out exactly who his mother was as a teenager, but she makes a move on him. Just imagine how that then goes on to affect you mentally in your relationships and even just in your your daily life with your with your parents how does that affect you going forward not not something that again that we really explore which is why I think when people say, "Oh, what other what other story could you tell for Back to the Future?" there is, there are so many stories that you can still tell even within things that we have already seen. You can just expand in it further, and that's one of the reasons why I keep coming back to these movies is because there's just so much. It gives you more and more to think about each time. It seems
0: definitely. And Lorraine is pauses on her advances on Marty, even though she feels like when I kissed you, I feel like I'm kissing my brother uh because somebody's approaching the car however it's not george it's biff who tells his goons to take him uh out back he's gonna deal with him however he decides he's gonna sexually assault uh lorraine here
1: yeah yeah there is there is a a, a rape in progress in that car and uh it's again Everyone has this image of the 50s as oh things were better back then it was this great time and everything was vibrant and life was wonderful and look at this romanticized you know idealized kind of navel-gazy version of the 50s but then you have this ugliness taking place inside this 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 seemingly magical utopian time that everyone likes to make it out to be and it it's 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 very fitting and it's 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 sad but it it it's it is its own commentary on the idea of romanticizing the past and overlooking uh, uh its its flaws and its faults and the ugly truth of of things like this in even in such a small and personal way as this story is telling it you know it's kind of a microcosm of the way we look at the past and and how we remember things and then how that eventually gets us to where we wind up in the future when we don't learn from those things
0: no, and there's a reason why we don't leave and leave it to Beaverville anymore, but no, um, that's a topic for a different day. Um, however, Biff's goons decide to hide him in the trunk of a person's car, not knowing who is the uh, owner of the car, when it's actually the band. Um, 3D makes a racist slur and the band comes out to beat the shit out of them, and I wish to god they did.
1: (laughs) That's, yeah, that's a deleted scene that I would love. (laughs) Just The Starlighters just kicking the crap out of these assholes.
0: I I still get satisfied, like, get home to your mom, and he slaps the back of the kid's head (laughs) and makes him go running.
1: I also love it because uh, J.J. Cohen's character uh, in Biff's Gang, he looks so much, uh, he reminds me so much of, of Karate's bad boy, Mike Barnes from The Karate Kid Part 3. Uh, And and that character is just a a massive dickhead. So I I like to envision that this is Mike Barnes getting the crap kicked out of him by a a band playing a high school dance.
0: Yeah. like, Hey guys, I don't want to mess with any reefer addicts, okay? Um, (laughs) But they try to get Marty out of the trunk. However, the keys are in the trunk. Uh, George realizes he's running late and runs out to marty's car and opens the door thinking it's going to be marty in there but he finds biff instead and instead of running he stands his ground against biff and tries to go for a punch that does not work biff is, is ready to break george's arm uh marvin barry the leader of the band gets his hand cut trying to get marty out of the trunk Gets Marty out. Marty goes running back to the parking lot. Lorraine uh, helps uh, George by distracting Biff. And Biff lets go of George. But George finally bunches up his fist and gives him a whop. That sends him spinning around like a full 360 and knocking him out on his ass.
1: Yeah, the the perfect kind of double take of that punch. It's so satisfying. And just the sound that he makes as he hits the car and then he slides down. It's this great moment of elation. George is shaking. He's, I did the thing. I did it. I did it. Oh my God. This is what it feels like to be alive. Like you could just kind of read his internal thoughts. And it's it's cool because you can kind of, as you said, the the kind of liquid courage, you can kind of hear a little bit of that in his voice. As You know, no, Biff, you leave her alone. You know, that type of thing. And then it just, it just escalates and escalates. And you finally, you, you, you get that moment of release and you get that, that just wonderful punch. And it's, you know, not to send the message that, Oh yeah, the answer is just to punch the bully. And then your problem goes away. It's a little, you know, it's, it's a little bit simple, but in this case, yeah, he had to physically rescue this girl who was being raped by this horrible person and he did it and yeah that is a great moment of release and just the emotion on both of their faces on on George and Lorraine's faces it 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 it's just a moment that uh, it makes the story so much sweeter and you know their eventual uh, their eventual kiss at the dance it, it just makes it all so much sweeter and and more emotional
0: definitely and like who knew biff has a glass jaw who knew that he was a uh... Like, just one punch and knocks him on his uh, ass. Um, But it's such a great moment. Like, I love that line delivery where he's just like, he's still shaking in shock, but then he composes himself, and he says, are you okay? Um, Which is, like, the one thing that bothers me about... Part two, when we see it from a different point of view, I don't like the line reading. Like, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it's
1: yeah, it, it sounds like someone's impression of it on a podcast,
0: <laughs> yes. And I'm just like, eh, that, that's not really it, but okay, let's go with that. Yeah. However, the timeline's not fixed, the fa- the picture is still fading. So, in order to get them, he's like, Oh, I need to get them together on the dance floor, and that's where I have to kiss. But Marvin's cut his hand; he can't play unless he knows somebody else knows how to play the guitar. And so Marty uh, volunteers to do that, and so they jump into a rendition of Earth Angel. But it's it's interrupted because like there's something I, I felt I never felt this before until this viewing. Do you feel like his George's arc has completed? by knocking out Biff and this is just kind of spinning his wheel. It's playing the same beat twice, but
1: yeah, it's kind of, he, he has already overcome and now it's just like, Oh, we're doing this again. He has to, he has to now overcome Ferguson from Clarissa explains it all. <laughs> like, yeah, it, but you know, it, it, that moment is there for the drama of, of, of Marty's story and Marty, you know, disintegrating on the stage uh that moment is there and it does feel like a little bit of a retread of what we just saw but ultimately necessary because then we don't have the drama of 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 you know marty on the stage and and being erased from existence and fading out so it does lead to one of the best moments of the movie with the eventual you know excuse me and then the kiss and the music swell. Ugh, it just it, it just brings tears to your eyes.
0: Yeah, I mean like that is like at most a nitpick. That's why I bring it up there. I mean that is it doesn't. It's not a slight against the movie whatsoever. It was just something that came across my mind upon this viewing. And it is so satisfying when they do kiss and music swells. Marty stands up and the rest of the band's like, okay, yeah, okay, he's good. And I know the song ends and they say, Hey, let's play another one. And Marty's like, no, I got to go. But uh, even like the Bob's admit, like, eh, this is the only time, the only scene that doesn't really serve the story here where Marty gets to play music in front of people and he jumps into his rendition of Johnny be good.
1: It's just so much fun. I wouldn't want the movie without it. It's so much fun I wouldn't want to go immediately to the clock tower from this you need that buffer you need that kind of release and it's the perfect again this is where the movie then turns into you know the kind of fun musical uh, uh just everyone's having a good time and this movie has is is chameleon like in its ability to just change the tone just based on what part of the movie you're in and just kind of changed the genre and this is just so much fun and it's such a release and it's necessary because now we get we get more time with George and Lorraine we see them happy we see them dancing and we then this is where Marty's character arc comes full circle this is where he then overcomes because he has just seen his father overcome his lifelong bully now Marty is going to overcome his his kind of self-rejection and his fear of rejection and he's gonna rock the house, and he's gonna play that dance that he was denied playing at the beginning of the movie. So I wouldn't want the movie without it, just from a, a Marty character standpoint.
0: Definitely, and you're right because now he has the confidence to play in front of a crowd and knows he's destined to play music, even if the the playing behind his head, the finger tapping, and destroying of amplifiers might not might be a little extreme <laughs> for the people of 1955. <laughs>
1: See, this is how you know that 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 he is a true uh, he he is a true performer because he just totally gets possessed in that moment. And uh, I would have loved to have seen uh, a a legitimate 1985 Pinheads performance (laughs) because it, it would have been something. I mean, they have him going through the entire history of 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 rock and roll guitar playing here but to see an actual pinheads performance it would have been very interesting to see okay of this what does marty actually play like how does he actually play is he an eddie van halen clone does he have his own style does he incorporate the chuck berry stuff how does he actually play another question that i've always kind of thought about is if we saw an actual pinheads performance not just the first couple bars of uh the power of love in the beginning
0: right um, my favorite reaction shot is just of Strickland covering both of his ears. As if bombs are going off, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and,
1: and then uh, you get Marvin Berry like, "What the hell did you just do to my It's t- all out
0: of tune now. Do you know like how long it's gonna take me to retune this? I don't have a tuner on me.
1: <laughs> Could you imagine if he like he's like he's like in drop D now <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> like what the hell is this? He starts playing like
0: disturbed riffs. Uh, like, oh man, it's like ch ch like ah <laughs> goddamn it! Like, like now I got uh, m- I got a masuga uh, t- tuning going on right now. <laughs> See,
1: if, if, if there were a more modern version of Back to the Future, Marty would have done some crab
0: core <laughs> on the stage. <laughs> oh, man. And that, but he would have also broke out the synthesizers to go along with his solo. It would have been amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, he would have had, like, foot pedals. He would have had, like, the Getty Lee. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, he has one final scene with his parents um, saying goodbye. He has to go. They thank him. Um, he says, "Like, hey, if you ever have kids, um, and one of your kids accidentally sets fire to the living room rung, go easy on them, please." Very hyper specific, <laughs> very, very specific. And you have to
1: wonder, like, number one, how he did this? Is this uh, is this Doc's influence? Was Marty doing a science experiment in the living room? Uh, and what did they do to him after this happened? That it is that important that he would <laughs> mention that to them.
0: Uh I just thought he was playing Jimi Hendrix and he set his acoustic guitar on fire <laughs> in the middle of the living room.
1: Alright, yeah, that's okay, head cannon accepted. I, <laughs> I, I I I'll go with that. And then I also have to wonder if this eventually did happen for this version of George and Lorraine, are they just entirely freaked out that this prophetic kid that they were friends with for a week uh, <laughs> that he knew that this would happen.
0: Yeah. They probably thought they were just visited by an angel. I guess they that to chalk that up to like, how else would they explain them being brought together, him knowing that thing was going to happen in the future. Yeah. Um, so we get to the town square and Marty's running late, but as usual, uh, doc explains he has to go all the way to the end of this road here. He's got about a quarter mile to get up to 88 miles an hour and hit, And I have the timer set up here once this goes off you hit the gas and you race right to this uh, point here and you'll you'll reach the wire when it uh, turns to 10.04 and the place gets struck by lightning and everything should be fine but he finds a letter in his jacket pocket left by Marty explaining what's going to happen to him in the future with the Libyans uh, which leads to a conflict between the two of them
1: this is a really well played scene between the two of them, with the kind of awkward hug, and you know the you know I hope so, and and them just having to yell over the the really loud wind, and then the internal struggle of, of of Doc with this information about the future, and then the more pressing matter of of the the cable coming undone. But another thing is that just this town square just looks so beautiful, all lit up at night. It's just so I wish I could just have like a panoramic view of the entire town square looking like this lit up at night with the neon signs. It's just so
0: gorgeous. Definitely. I mean, it was the right decision to set this climax here. Um, I love that hug. It might be awkward, but it's like coupled with the music. And it's like, I'll see you in about 30 years. And Marty replies, like, I hope so. Like, ah, I guess the older I get that, that, that moment yeah. meets more and more to me.
1: Yeah, that there are so many moments like that that get me choked up now. That when I was younger, they they didn't have that effect.
0: Uh, it's truly, truly remarkable. But Doc decides to rip up the letters as I refuse to know anything about the future. But before Marty can actually spell it out to him, uh, one of the trees is comes apart because of the wind and yanks down some of the wires that prevent that would prevent it from sending the lightning to. The poles that are right next to the road there. And Doc puts the letter back in his pocket. And then um, takes the uh, rope up with him. And he says, alright, I'm going to throw it down to you. And you tie the cable up to him. So Doc goes out top of the clock tower. He's able to send the cable up to him uh, via rope. And Mario tries to explain to him what the hell is going on. However, it's 10 o'clock. He's got less than four minutes to get in the car, get into position, get ready. And this is what great storytelling is, like intention and obstacle. Somebody wants to do this. However, this happens. Therefore, he retorts this. But this happens. And it's just tit for tat until somebody wins. Seeing like, oh, he's able to get across the clock before. But the the wood underneath his feet breaks apart. Marty tries to get the car starting, and when the alarm goes off, but the car won't start. And all this is just building up the tension in this entire climax. It's such
1: a well-edited scene, too. It's just the constant acceleration of the DeLorean and uh, the cuts back to Doc and the the tension of him reaching out and and then the the rip of the pants and him dangling and then eventually he gets it and then it comes on hooked at the other end and that frustration you you sent me uh, uh you you sent me a, either a picture or a gif not too long ago of <laughs> of, uh, of a, a bit of this scene and and that that feeling when it comes to the, it's just like yeah it's you uh, it's like every time I'm i am just at the edge of my seat like yeah plug it in hurry quick get down there quick don't fall hurry he's not gonna make it like and i've seen this movie more than any other movie and it still gets me and that's just truly like at this point with how desensitized you can become to a movie after having seen it so many times the fact that this sequence still really gets you it's it's just a testament to how well edited it is
0: yeah i mean it's my favorite edited set piece in any movie this set piece here and the whole principle behind this set piece is like one step forward two steps back like they're able to get like oh we get a little bit head. oh but this thing happens and so but then like doc is able to plug in his receiver on his end right there however he yanks the stuff down in the on the ground level out and the alarm goes off the car's not turning over but marty smashes his head against the steering wheel magically turn the car on which has happened to me once my first car which died on me often. I did smash my head into the steering wheel, and it did turn the car over. <laughs> That's amazing. And I literally just peeled out of there. I was, like, I was not. I was literally just as elated as Marty was. And I was like, "All right, I'm getting out of here." And just Marty speeding down the road to the clock tower. Like I sit forward in my seat every single time, and my knuckles go white. It's like, "Oh my god, will he make it? He better make it." Like like you, I've seen this movie hundreds of times i know he's going to make it but i'm still on the edge of my seat every time yeah and it's
1: it's just how good this movie this is Uh, how how good this movie is that you still have that same feeling that oh shit you know just the dread of that uh, the other end of the cable and then the timing of it all and just for someone like me with you know with 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 very high anxiety it just like it like super like triggers all of that and then it's just so satisfying that uh you know eventually he makes it and doc runs down through the fire trails and again another moment of celebration that it slows the pace down and it's the come down and it's it's just great and then the the seamless transition back to the 80s just a wonderful wonderful sequence
0: yeah, I mean, like it makes you want to stand up and cheer when he gets back in time, and he lightning strikes the tower, runs down the line, is sent back to the future. Um, we have a, a cameo by Buck Flower as the uh, as Red, uh, the homeless person, um, who I think shows up in a bunch of John Carpenter movies later on. And um, but since he came back to the present in uh, Midstride. He does go careening into the theater at the end of the block. Uh,
1: yes, the the, uh, 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 the Assembly of Christ.
0: Yes, who are going to be uber pissed in the morning when they find out um, there's a hole in the wall like the Kool-Aid man ran through there. <laughs> uh, but he went back 10 minutes earlier in order to warn Doc of what's going to happen, but the car's dead. It's not turning over right now. But while he's trying to do that, he sees the Libyans pass him. So Marty goes running back to the mall, the Lone Pine Mall now, and sees a version of himself go through the same motions that he did a week prior in his body-wise. But it's a different Marty because it's a Marty that came up from a, a happier home life. It's very curious to see what that Marty's life is like compared to his.
1: Yeah, this is one of the most stimulating things to me about these movies is this ability for Marty to observe himself from another timeline and just watch this sequence play out and repeat itself. And that especially, that gets way ramped up in in part two, but this is one of the most stimulating things for me to think about is this other Marty, what was his life like? He eventually wound up in the exact same situation, which is remarkable, and Doc must have had a lot of, you know a lot of foresight to, to know that this kid's life is going to be very different. So I need to make sure that he is still on this path to make this, this loop to close this loop that has to happen for when the other Marty gets back.
0: Yeah. And so he sees doc get shot. He does he's unable to prevent that, but he does see himself go back in time and the Libyans go crashing into a super eight, uh development stand, which was a thing at the time. Uh, which does presumably kill him, but if this was a really 80s action movie, they would have blown up, like it would have been spectacular in that way. Uh, However, Marty runs up to Doc, and he seems to be dead, and Marty begins to cry, but Doc stirs, and he sits up, and he's been wearing a bulletproof vest. Marty wonders how the hell is that possible, but Doc, I guess, got curious, and taped up the letter that Marty had written for him, and prepared himself.
1: Yeah, and it's the change in Doc where he just figures what the hell it's that change in Doc from having met Marty in 1955 that eventually saved his life. So I think that's just one of the most beautiful things about this movie is uh is yeah, Marty saved Doc's life because he changed who he was as a person from from their their week of friendship in the 50s. I just I one of the more when you start to think about it yeah he the old doc would not have allowed that to happen he would not have uh tempted fate and he would not have changed future events with knowledge from the future but uh this this doc did and it's it's that's the doc that we are going to then be on the adventure with throughout the rest of the movies so uh it's it's a
0: welcome change it definitely is and so Doc brings it back home. Says he's going to go about 30 years into the future. Sounds like a nice round number. And he seems a lot calmer. He seems a lot more self-assured about himself. Um, and it's also probably the quickest that that car gets up to 88 miles an hour. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was quicker than uh, than all the lights in the Peabody home getting
0: turned on. Yeah. I mean, it's either that or the drive-in in par three. Like, I love that when he goes back in time to 1885. But that's not a... A lot of real estate to get up to 88 miles an hour, but whatever. Um, that's nitpicking for sure. So, Marty wakes up in the exact same position that he was woken up earlier in the movie. So, he wonders if that was just a nightmare. But when he goes out into the living room, everything is completely changed, everything is more much more affluent. His siblings are getting ready to go to work, including Dave's ready to go to the office. His parents come in, they look healthy, look thin. They just came back from playing tennis. It's a very, it's a very early '80s kind of ending, and Marty's gobsmacked by
1: this. The thing that people like to say about this ending is that it's materialistic. It's about oh, they they made more money now. Now they're more successful, so yeah, they're happier. But it misses the entire point of Marty is walking out of his room with uh, a little envelope that people don't take note of this and i've heard people discuss this that his his idea of sending in the 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 demo tape to the record company that never comes back that's what he's holding in his hand right there as he's walking to the kitchen he's holding that envelope to send out and it's so underplayed and it doesn't call attention to itself and you miss it if you haven't seen this movie as many times as 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 we have but he is holding that tape because he's about to send it out because his life has changed and that's his character arc so the, the fact that people like to say it's a materialistic ending. Marty never learned anything. He's the, he's the same as he was in the beginning. I completely reject that because he's holding it right in his hand right there.
0: Yeah. And we see the... Um, George hires the person who attempted to rape his future wife. As you do. As you do. You keep him in line and you, I guess turn him into a very effeminate person like you knock that out of him with one punch i mean shit i don't think batman's able to accomplish that (laughs) um it's it's rather strange but like i love super happy-go-lucky biff here at the end yeah
1: yeah i mean and we do kind of that is kind of retconned uh at the beginning of part two where it is put on it's a little bit performative you know him being a little bit, uh, 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 him being subservient and him just being this kind of happy go lucky, wimpy guy, uh, around the McFlies. And then all of a sudden he sees the DeLorean, uh, at the beginning of part two and he goes, What the hell is going on here? So there is still that element of, you know, who the biff that once was still in him. But he, he just looks so funny in his little tracksuit and his hair is just, it's still awful. Uh, but he just he just looks so ridiculous here with his little tracksuit with his rag sticking out of the back of his pants
0: yeah, I mean, like when he walks in there Hey Mr. Fly, I think it's your book oh hi Marty uh I love that little little, little gesture there, and we find out in the now yeah it's like you could you argue it's a materialistic because now he's a published author and with a book that could probably stop a bullet um. <laughs>
1: Yeah, with a with a picture that doesn't look anything like yeah, him on the I, back. I, like,
0: who's, like this is is that the prop to, uh, master? Is that whose picture on the back of that book? Because that's not George <laughs> McFly. Yeah. Um. And then so then also Marty gets keys, and it's to the four by four that he was goggling at uh, earlier on in the movie that now he's able to take it up to uh, the lake, and this is when Jennifer comes back in, and Marty's just enamored with her because he hasn't seen her in a week. And it's just like, it's a nice full circle. Everything seems calm. Everything's like, everything's great. They're about to go in for a kiss, but this is when the Lorraine comes flying in um, and Doc has come from the future and needs Marty to come back with him to the future because it's your kids, Marty. Something's got to be done about your kids. And the
1: idea here is that they have to go to the future to stop some future event that hasn't taken place. And then they go back. And then it doesn't matter. That's one of the things about the idea, the setup for part two that has always kind of bothered me is that they can go back, they can go into the future and change this event that he's talking about with his kids. But then once they come back, does it matter? Because then then they're back in 1985 and they still have to live their life out to 2015 so that event could happen again. Marty Marty now has future knowledge. I've never understood this though. Marty now has future knowledge which all along he's not supposed to have, but then he has to stop a future event that is then going to be null and void as soon as he goes back.
0: Not not necessarily, because when he eventually catches up to that timeline, he knows to be okay because his older version of himself has prevented whatever tragedy that or malfeasance is going to happen to his kids in the future.
1: Right, but then, but then the idea is that just. Does it can't Doc just like put something in place so that Marty knows to stop this event in the future? Does he is it necessarily urgent? I mean, he has a time machine, yeah. So the fact that Doc is rushing around and then they, oh, we quick, we have to stop this thing that hasn't happened yet, and then we're gonna come back, and then it didn't happen again, and then we have the you know, it kind of seems a little bit like. That I understand that in, in part one, this was all just a joke. This whole doc showing up at the end, it was a joke and they never intended to continue. But the fact that they did continue on right from this moment, whereas, as you said, there could have been a passage of time, it could have been a completely different adventure. That is one of the, the things where I feel like maybe a little missed opportunity, them feeling like they did have to pick up right from that moment, which was ultimately a joke, which caused a couple of problems for them.
0: Right, they wrote themselves into a corner by picking up the baton, literally at the end of this one, in the second one, and. But also, I don't think we have enough charts right now to map this out to make sure if this would actually work. If oh yeah, preventing a future event, we don't like. I I am I am not up on my quantum physics, and I do not want to split give, split my head open trying to wrap my mind <laughs> around it. <laughs> no, um, but yeah. So the movie ends, and then. Uh, it changed the world. I mean, it's gone down in history as one of the most popular movies of all time. It was the biggest hit in 1985, produced on a budget of $19 million, would go on to make $388.8 million worldwide, spawned two sequels, uh, comic books, video games, a fantastic universal ride that's no longer there. And yeah, it's just something that changed... So many people's lives, us included,
1: yeah, definitely changed my life a lot of a lot of uh, uh, a lot of my fondest memories of kind of the my middle school high school years, which are you know for a lot of people, those are kind of shitty years and they're tough years and to look back on them. At least I know that I have all these memories of of being uh, an active Back to the Future fan. I was on the forums, on the, on the website. I was in Back to the Future chats on AOL Instant Messenger. And those are some really good times that I look back on. And, you know, I'm still glad that there's such an active community for these movies. And there are great podcasts out there like What the Flux, like I mentioned um that keeps it keeps the legacy alive and that it's still relevant enough that the 35th anniversary there's there's a lot of activity around around the movies right now so it's really fun to see it's fun to walk into a store and just be able to go to my mom, oh my god look there's a back to the future lunchbox oh there's a back to the future this back to the future that it's just it's just fun to see it it's it, it's something that will remain with me throughout you know, my whole life. And it's just one of those, those comfort movies that I will always, always go back to and always have so much fun talking about it. And clearly we have fun talking about it because we just talked for close to four hours about it. So
0: <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, no, I, I was wondering like, am I going too fast? I'm like, look at the time. No, we're not going fast. enough. we better pick this no. up. <laughs> um, I knew it was going to be long. I mean, this, obviously like this is like before I ever started doing podcasts. This is something that I'd want to discuss with you on a podcast. I would love to do it in person, but just situations how it is. And yeah, like you, this is a movie that changed my life. It's in my top five, uh, favorite movies. It's also in my top five movies that made me want to make movies along with Jurassic Park, the Terminator, Star Wars, and Batman 89. It, it, it's just one of those things that like, wow. It, like I become a kid again and not like a, Juvenile sense, like oh, my childhood, and I think no, I think this is just a perfect movie, and I'm so grateful for this fandom because there are a lot of fandoms out there that let that leave me very sour because it just becomes very, I know toxic is an overused word, but it just like becomes insufferable. But Back to the Future people, people who like it, are just really cool people, and I'm just glad to call them friends, and because we enjoy something that's just so wholesome. And I don't know where I'd be without this movie. Back to the Future
1: is one of those things where uh, you kind of, when you first meet someone, you're trying to kind of suss out, you know, what they're into and what kind of person they are. And there are are a lot of obvious things out there. Oh, yeah, everyone's into that. Everyone's into that. Uh, But. When you meet someone who's like real real into Back to the Future, it's like, okay, cool. I can I can have some 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 great conversations with this person. I can get along with this person. It's kind of one of those things where it's like it's this this cool little uh cool little club that I'm I'm proud to be a part of cuz it's it's just it's just a uh such a a happy uh every time that I I I'm talking about it or I'm watching it or have anything to do with it. It's just such a happy feeling that it gives me.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, if you find, like, somebody who's, like, really a deep Back to the Future fan, like, you can make a joke from Back to the Future 3, and they'll get it. Yeah.
1: Like, that's... Or, you, or you can say, like, you can say, like, wallet guy, and they know what you're talking about.
0: He's you guys stole this guy's wallet. I think he stole this guy's <laughs> wallet. Uh. <laughs> or, you say, or you can just have the line delivery. That's George McFly? <laughs> uh. And I think I want a George McFly for class president pin. I think that's what I need right now. <laughs>
1: yeah, and a uh, Mayor Goldie Wilson. Uh...
0: Those I think <laughs> exist. I think T Public yeah. must have those.
1: Oh yeah, the, all the all the stuff is out there. All the you can go on Red Bubble or whatever and get anything that you want from these movies
0: on a T shirt or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and so do you have any final thoughts on Back to the Future?
1: I, I mean, I think I have talked at length about it at this <laughs> point. Uh for the for the sake of time I will just say it's my favorite movie of all time. I love it. Uh if I have any control over the last movie I ever see before I die, I would like it to be Back to the Future. Uh The End. Thank you for having me on to talk about <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean like I didn't expect to break a record with this podcast, but maybe I should have. Maybe I should have like I shouldn't have undershot yeah. it, but we're now in audiobook territory. Yes, we are. I mean, like I, I think it's like that in like Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Like that thing's like five and a half hours of like of World War One. Like, and this is a six part series. Like, yeah, okay, we're not going to top that. But yeah, like you, it is one of those quintessential movies that defines me as a person. Um, It's made me want to be a creative person. I think it's the biggest takeaway you can take away from this movie is that whatever dopey idea of Whatever creativity you have inside you, whether it's like, even if it's just like raising a family and you want to do it in a unique way and want to be wacky about it, like, don't be afraid of it. Try it and see how it works. Like, it may not, you may not be accepted at your time, but somebody will, if it's filled with like genuine love and heart, it will connect with somebody. And like this line says, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. And I think it's a beautiful message you could take away from this movie.
1: It really is. And that's that's my favorite thing to tie it back to the moral of this movie and how the message isn't ultimately materialistic. That is ultimately the message. It's about that. It's about the power of believing yourself. And it is about the power of love, like Huey Lewis said. Uh, And, you know, that that belief in yourself and putting your mind to it, that is something very relevant for me right now. And I'm sure a lot of people who who have been hit hard uh, by the events of, of this year with the pandemic and everything. Um, and you find yourself in a, in a situation that you know you never imagined yourself in but so it's it's it is something that I watch it now and I take away something completely new from it just based on events happening in real time so uh, just a, a film that will always 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 stay with me
0: definitely now I don't think you have any social medias to plug so you don't have to worry about that right
1: I do not uh, but I would like to plug my website and my services I am. Uh, I am now a full-time freelancer. I do audio production. I edit podcasts. I make music uh, and other imaging, liners, intros, things like that for podcasts. Um, You can check out my website, multitrackminds.com, if you're interested. Uh, I've been doing this uh, full-time freelance uh, as a result of, you know, this year and everything going on, kind of forced me to become a freelancer. So, uh, that's really all I have to plug. Uh, the only other thing being that I do, if you're interested in wrestling, I do covers of wrestling music for a project called Wrestling Undercover. And you can find that on YouTube at youtube.com slash wrestling undercover, as well as on SoundCloud, uh, soundcloud.com slash And you can see all of my wrestling covers that I've done.
0: And if you enjoy the theme song to the show is because this gentleman I'm speaking to
1: that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That was a Christmas A original. Yeah. And I'm I am I am always uh proud whenever I listen, I'm always uh proud that I have made my mark on the show, even when I am not on the show. So uh always happy about that.
0: Yes, you're always with us in spirit, even if you're not on the show. And like even like I especially love your Stranger Things rendition, which like I think that's another reason I want to cover the show again, because I just want to drop that in and have that play Ooh, during yeah. the podcast. <laughs> Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, and 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 if we do that, I'll give you a little bit of a spruced up version of that
0: too. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, if people if people made it this far. And thank you. <laughs> yes, a thank you. If you want to prove to us that you made it this far, you can reach me out on Twitter and on Instagram. I made it simple. I ch- they're both the same now. Uh, this is Tim Rooney. You can find me on Instagram and on uh, Twitter at this is Tim Rooney. Reach out and say uh, hashtag Power of Love if you made it this far into the podcast, <laughs> uh, and as well as my YouTube channel, uh, YouTube.com/slash/ThroughTheLensProductions. Through as if you're going through a window. But Lady Short Film, Mad Cow, is up. I have another one in the works that I hope I'll get out by uh, on Halloween or maybe a little bit after. Uh, so Ooh. we can hopefully look forward to that. And, uh, yeah, and, of course, the other podcast I do, uh, Please Rewind, the rf 4 Retro Show. Uh, we do something very similar to this. Uh, we talk about movies when it comes to anniversaries. And, yeah, that's uh, all the wares that I'm going to pimp right now. Because I'm starting to lose and my you, and, and, and you're three people on that show,
1: and you somehow do episodes that are shorter than this one.
0: <laughs> yes. And, and, but also, I'm like, right now, like, I'm losing my voice here. And I'm like, I gotta, I <laughs> yeah, gotta tap too. out. <laughs> I'm going to start sounding like Nick Nolte. Like, all right, so we're talking about the future part two now. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, come back next time as we continue to talk about uh, Geek of Pop Culture. And uh, we'll be speaking to you soon.